This episode is sponsored by Better Help. What is the first thing that you would do if you had an extra hour in your life? Oh, the first thing I just thought was, oh, I'm going to need more than an hour to fit that stuff in. But uh, the fact is a lot of us spend our lives wishing that we had more time. I know that is for me. That's a big thing, uh, especially you get older. <laughs> um, and the question, you know, time for what? What would you do? Would it actually make you feel better? What is it that you feel you're missing in order, you know, that that would make it better? Um, and and one of the ways to sort of help figure out that out is is therapy. It can help you find out what matters most to you so you can do more of it or focus on what it is that you're spending your time on that that maybe isn't giving you that that sort of fulfilling experience. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of times people talk about therapy or they talk about mental health or it's about uh, trauma or it is about, you know, like like a, a great amount of pain or anything. And those things are all very valid and everything. But also, you know, in some ways there's stumbling blocks. Uh, there is sort of a, a, something indefinable that you're having a hard time getting to that maybe is stopping you from feeling as confident as you can, as good as you can. And, you know, therapy uh, is, is one way to go after that. If you are thinking of starting therapy, you can give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online, is designed to, be, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire, you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. You may switch therapists at any time you like for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. This is iFanboy 2020 All Media Year in Roundup, brought to you by iFanboy listeners just like you who are washing their hands, wearing their masks, social distancing, being smart, and being good. Thank you. All the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. Since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Oh, well, it doesn't show signs of stopping, and I've brought some corn for popping. The lights are turned way down low, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. When we finally kiss goodnight, how oh, I'll be going out in the Hello, welcome to iFanboy 2020 All Media Year and Roundup. My name is Connor Kilpatrick. I'm here with Josh Lanigan. That's me. Hi, Connor. And Ron Richards. Hey, you guys let me back in the building. I like just it's at the end of the year that my key card works to yeah. get back in the office. We have so. it set for that. And you're like, where is everybody? <laughs> this office hasn't been used in years. <laughs> what? <laughs> we are iFanboy and we like comic books, but we also like a lot of other stuff. And we've been doing this every year. We've been podcasting for the last 15 years. We like to gather at the end of the year and talk about the things we enjoyed this year in movies and TV shows and music and games and books and podcasts and also our favorite comics from the year 2020. Hang on, you you quickly glossed over that uh, fifteen years. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is a long. Not on the regular show. We talk about this a lot. It comes uh, up pretty uh, regularly. That's a long so time. Still here. <laughs> <laughs> and there's your disclaimer, including it being a lot. It was weird this year. I don't know if you know, but there there were basically no movies. There was no live music. Everyone's lives went haywire. And we also started our Media Splode show, which is unlocked by the patrons over patreon.com slash ifanboy. And we talked about a lot of the things we're going to talk about here because there was just so few things to talk about. So you may hear some things that are new, but you'll hear some things we also talked about already. If you want more in-depth discussions, you might want to go check those shows out. Uh, you might hear some repeats. Nothing we can do about it. Nothing we can do. <laughs> There's nothing we can do. <laughs> so also, fi- I'll finally, quick reminder, warning, is it's not really a total review show, but we might have to talk about some things that happened, some of these things, in the TV shows and the movies. So there might be some spoilers. So if you're really sensitive or haven't seen a show or a movie you're, and you're planning on it, you might want to skip that part. Use the show notes. 
that's why we spend the time to do them. Otherwise, why are we bothering? We ask ourselves that a lot, Connor. This is the airing of grievances. See Just in general. Oh, here we go. Here it goes. So we're going to start with <laughs> movies, as we traditionally do. And I'm going to start with a film that just came out uh, right before we recorded. I haven't been able to see it yet. It's killing me. At the end of the year, Mank on Netflix. This is from David Fincher, written by his father. I think Jack Fincher, right, is his name. Oh, I, I wondered about that. So just so we're clear, going in this one, I watched like a half an hour of it. My wife fell asleep, and then we lost the power on the internet for two days. So <laughs> don't ruin this for me, because okay. I really loved as much as I saw. Yeah, and, and I've only seen the, the annoying uh, Netflix starts playing the movie before you've chosen to watch it clip. Yep. Yeah. And I went and I, ooh ooh to the point where I had to stop it because I didn't want more of the movie spoiled right, for me. Right. So <laughs> I think one of the the secret most interesting things that's going to happen next year is the Oscars. Yeah, because who the hell knows what's going to get nominated for an Oscar? Maybe we'll see Best Picture nominee Bill and Ted's whatever the fuck that was called. But I think you're going to have to put Mank as a front runner for all the major categories. It's it's the only really big prestige film we've had this year coming out of a major filmmaker. Mank is the story of Herman Mankiewicz's struggle to write Citizen Kane as we flash back into his life as a screenwriter as he meets the people who become characters in the film. It's masterful. Let's give them credit, too, for making something that sort of everybody can get behind. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching going, okay, I love this, but who the hell else cares about this? <laughs> people in Hollywood. That's why it's going to get nominated for all the Oscars. People yeah, in Hollywood you're right. Love it Hollywood is a very movies. insider thing, yeah. Do they still know? Like, is that a thing that people still, like, understand Citizen Kane and all the bits of it? Like, I just assume people that, younger than me just never did. No, they have no idea. Okay. I mean, and it's rare that somebody our age actually knows too, unless you're really into film and movies and things like yeah. that. But I make Citizen Kane jokes at work all the time, and they just fall flat. Do you know where I like? You know where I picked it up for me, and you guys might be the same. Is I feel like in one of the Charlie Brown specials, there's one where like Charlie Brown is talking about Snoopy, and Snoopy was like wooing the, the the lady dog, and he was like, and he thinks Citizen Kane is the best film of all time, and I never forgot that until I could finally go see it. <laughs> Citizen Kane was one of the movies that my dad sat me down in junior high or middle school saying, you, ha- you have to watch this. Yeah. Well, the thing about Citizen Kane, and we're not, this, this is not a pick about Citizen Kane, but we can talk about it, is that... Oh, we should do a Citizen Kane discussion on Amidius Blood. We should. I it's kind of like the that. Beatles yeah. in that someone from the modern age will watch it and go, what's the big deal? But then you have to look at it in the context of other film at the time. It's, it's just so leaps and bounds beyond what anyone was doing storytelling-wise and with camera work and cinematography. I was so into Citizen Kane as a kid that when we went to California, we went to Hearst Castle in San Simeon. My family was completely caught up in it. That's why I can't wait to see Mank because because there's just the whole – swirling story of Orson Welles and, Char- and uh, I was going to say Charles Nelson Reilly, <laughs> William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> Very different film. And anytime I think of a three-name person, the first thing I go to is Charles Nelson Reilly. <laughs> it's a lot of Hollywood squares. I was, and I was really talking about some deep film you know, critical theory. That, no, but um, the, the William Randolph Hearst story is just fascinating and Orson Welles is fascinating and everything about this movie is fascinating. So that's why like, gonna, I mean, Connor, tell me this. You, so this was good. It's very good. It's very, it, it's interesting, Josh, that you love it so much because I thought the beginning was very unfincher like. The, the whole thing was the first half hour is like jaunty, and Fincher is yeah. not a jaunty filmmaker. He's a very no, deliberate I, I thought filmmaker. that too, which I thought was surprising. Yeah, seeing the trailer, it feels almost Tim Burton esque. Yeah, it kind of it moves with like a jaunty soundtrack, and the cutting is jaunty, and the scenes are jaunty, and it doesn't last the whole film that way. But the the first, I don't know, either the first act or the first half hour is just like, whoa, this is very unfincher like. Hey, well, I'll take Jaunty. 
Yeah, but at the same time that it's unfincher, like there's a lot of references. Like, oh, yeah. There's a lot of visual and cinematograph. Cinematograph. I don't know. He that uses word. techniques that they used back then, like a lot of the exactly. stuff in shooting in the cars. is it's very much like yep. there. There is projected uh, yeah. backgrounds and stuff. I mean, the thing about Citizen Kane, if you if you don't know, like one of the things that they did was they flooded the sets with light so they could have really really deep depth of focus. And in order to do that, you just have to have tons of light, even though it doesn't look like it's super light. That so there's a lot of that. There's a scene early on ish when Louis B. Mayer gives this speech which is an amazing scene and the way that it is lit and shot is just you just don't see it in a movie today yeah. like it was it was like him doing an impression of a movie of that time but being really good at it yeah. so it felt like an old movie and a modern movie all at the same time yeah i i, I want to stop doing this with you guys <laughs> right now and go finish it like if you if you're a fan of old hollywood or, or hollywood in general the you know it's a great louis b mayor I'm pretty sure they just dug up Orson Welles and had him play himself. Oh my God, <laughs> that voice! I mean, he looks like so him, but good. the voice is so much like Orson Welles. John Houseman and and Irving Thalberg and yeah. Selznick—they're all in the movie. William Randolph Hearst—he's played by Charles Dance from Game of Thrones. And I thought that's weird. But then I looked at a picture of Hearst from the time; and he looks just like yep. him. Yep. I was back and forth on Gary Oldman, but ultimately he was enjoyable. He just didn't look anything like him, and also like he's twenty years older than the character, but. It's Gary Oldman. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, but there were several times where I snapped back to, "Oh, right, that's Gary Oldman," because it wasn't. I don't think it was a character like he plays very often. No, not at all. No, but that's but that's Gary Oldman. Like I'm not surprised to hear that because Gary Oldman yeah. is fantastic. And yeah. the thing about Herman Mankiewicz is, so he's a grandfather of Ben Mankiewicz, the host of TCM. That family, Joseph, his brother Joseph, they all wrote some of the biggest movies of that era. But he was like a legendary. He was a legendary wit. Like he was an original Algonquin Roundtable member when he was in New York as a theater critic. And when he went to Hollywood, he was like one of the most legendary funny people in Hollywood. And they, but he was also one of the most legendary drunks who died of 55 of alcohol-related illnesses. So that's all shown. It's, it's a wonderful character piece, just not even just a Hollywood sort of history film. It's, it's really great. And I mean, there's lots of films that came out this year through various means, some in theaters, some in streaming, other places. But I don't know that anything's come out this level of craft. So right now, I think it has to be uh, all the award front runners simply because nothing else is in the realm right now. So was it always going to be, um, I mean, if it's a Netflix movie, it's going to come out on Netflix, but were they going to pull an Irishman and put it in theaters yes, too? Yes, they were going to have to, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. Fincher signed a deal with Netflix, so the next bunch of films he's going to make are all going to come out through Netflix, but I, they, were all, they were also going to come out in theaters. Mank did come out in theaters. It came out in theaters a month before it came out on Netflix, but there's just no theaters to show it. Mm-hmm. So it technically did come out in theaters in November, but wherever there was a theater open, not in any big it cities. $75. So Josh, what do you want to talk about? Greyhound, uh, which we did talk about on the media explode, but I think it's worth revisiting again. It, we again we talked about this on a media explode, but it's you know sort of a movie that we saw first at home, like we will with a lot of these. But I sure would have liked to see it in the cinema. Things that are great about this include a Tom Hanks, who not only starred in it, I think he wrote it. Did he, he wrote direct? it. Yeah, he wrote it. Yeah, he wrote he it. He didn't direct it. He wrote. He it. didn't direct it. Right. He wrote it. He did like this little spate of promotional interviews and stuff like that like on on the hardcore history podcast and stuff and like he just loves this stuff mm-hmm. which we've seen you know that's not unusual with saving private ryan or you know band of brothers and a lot of things like that like this is one of his passion things and he took this very small bit of story that takes place you know in geez i'm trying to remember it's in the pacific right it's like a, is it like a dead spot no. it's the atlantic no, crossing it's in the, no, atlantic. the atlantic crossing that's right sorry oh my uh, god He's oh, he's like escorting a bunch of British on. ships. <laughs> so he's, yeah, he's escorting British through this area where there's no radio contact, and it's sort of the story that kind of gets told. 
and it's just incredibly gripping. I just I remember being tense the entire time. You know, it was a bit of that war in, in time that I, I I hadn't really known about. You know, like it's not all like guns on the on the front and bombers and stuff like that. It was just get these ships through. You know, and the, you know they kind of had depth charges to work with, but really it was sort of unsung part of the war. And I, I just thought it was a really beautiful little movie about something that was actually pretty important and, and interesting. And I thought it was really well done. It was quite good. It was a nice, tight little movie. Yep. Yeah. Thriller. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned how you say you wish you could have seen it in the theater because a movie I, I'm going to talk about later on had that same feeling. But I didn't mind watching my favorite movie this year at home, which was uh, Palm Springs, which came out on Hulu. We talked about this on the Media Explode. So if you listen, if you listen to a Media Explode, you might have heard us go in more detail here. Palm Springs was one of those movies that just kind of, you know, like part of, you know, Connor talking, you mentioned this year has been turned upside down and all the norms have been thrown out the window with the lack of weekly movie releases mm-hmm. also seems to have killed my any sort of promotional awareness of what is coming out which is further exacerbated by 9 million streaming services and not being able to keep track of what's coming out when and where yep. or whatever. It's really, really hard. But all I know is that one day out of nowhere, it within my social media feed amongst people who I trust, so I'm not just going to say like, got a lot of noise in there, right? And there's a lot of people who you just like, oh, whatever. You, you kind of you can dismiss what they say, but people who I trust in their opinions, which is like, if you do anything this weekend, watch Palm Springs. Oh my God, watch Palm Springs, Palm Springs. And I was just like, what is it? So me and my wife just sat on the couch, went to Hulu, watched it with no, never saw the trailer. Didn't and, and the, the problem is that he started off watching a golf tournament and then they were like, <laughs> no, no, this. And he went, oh, that makes much more sense. No. I went into it with no awareness or anything like that and was completely delighted with a, with a, you know, you know, admittedly, you know, comparison to Groundhog's Day, but like Groundhog's Day esque science fiction, reality science fiction kind of Twilight Zone story. Take on you know, that totally genre. unique, totally yeah. unique. Yeah, and with comedic bent, you know, of course, with Andy Samberg and and I forget the actress's name. It was just delightful and interesting. And like my measure of the things that stick with me are the things that we talk about that that me and my wife and or me and friends talk about, like days or weeks after i watched and that this was of all the movies the one that was just like man when this happened what do you think you know like you just analyze and discuss and continue revisiting it was delightful so for me that was my best film of the year i had the most fun watching the reunion of bill murray and sofia coppola happened on apple tv plus i watched it connor we got this one in on the rocks it came out in october it was bill murray and it was rashida jones and marlon wayans and it's a delightful little movie. I feel like it could have used another pass maybe on the script, but... Agreed. It's just a delightful little movie about a father and a daughter. It's only 90 minutes. Rashida Jones plays a woman who, she's wealthy, her dad's really rich, and she's you know got a kid and a husband who's running some sort of nebulous social media company that was the... That was celebrating 500,000 followers. Yeah. I was like, come on, please. We're spending a lot of money at that party to celebrate 500,000 followers. I know. <laughs> and uh, she's not quite sure that her husband isn't having an affair, so her Peter Pan-esque ne'er-do-well father, played by Bill Murray, who was an international art dealer. I love the jobs that people in Hollywood think that people have, like in the real world. Yeah. Decides to help her try to figure out if her husband's having an affair or not. And it's just this little, sweet little movie between the father and the daughter who work on their relationship while they're trying to figure out if her relationship has a future or not. It wasn't great, but it was really nice. And Sofia Coppola gets really great performances out of Bill Murray. He's really great in this movie. It's just a fun little sweet 
intimate film that big studios do not make anymore. So if these movies have to live on streaming, then that's what has to happen because there's no other studio going to make this kind of film anymore. Yeah. It's just too bad. I enjoyed it. I mean, we watched it. I mean, it's definitely, you know, cult of Bill Murray will enjoy it. Yep. yep. I don't know. It's just, it, you know, Sofia Coppola, I, I, I consider myself a fan of. I, you know, of course, love Lost in Translation, but also love Marie Antoinette. You know, so it's like, ooh, I want to see what the latest that she's doing. And again, this this was a nice, tight, you know, not that long. And it was fine. Yes. Yeah, it, it was good. Not great. I would say that. It's so. enjoyable. We had a long discussion in our last media split about movies on streaming services. And this, I think, epitomizes that where it's like enjoyable. And nice, and I, I'm happy I watched it. I'm glad. I loved all the actors in it. I thought Marlon Mayans was surprisingly really good in it. Mm. But I felt like it was less than. I felt like it needed a little bit more. Like if I'd seen it in the theater, I would have been like, oh, okay. But that's a whole other discussion that we already had. I enjoyed watching it. I didn't love it. I enjoyed watching it. That's sort of the watchword for the, all these movies because we had no other choice. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I did want to see it before we ended the year because I was like, oh, that's one on the list that I want to watch. Yep. But. Um, yay, Bill Murray. The scene when he got pulled over. It was great. Yeah, it was great. Very, Also, very good New York love letter, New York pre-pandemic yep. uh, love letter movie. And Rashida Jones is terrific. They had a great chemistry together. It was really good in terms yeah. of that stuff. Also, over on Apple TV+, Plus, I think one day I said, hey, this banker thing keeps showing up. And I decided to just sort of flick it on, and it was a real movie. <laughs> like I, I think this is early in the, are these TV movies or real movies? And it was Sam Jackson and, and Anthony Mackie. And it was a period piece about basically a black entrepreneur who couldn't buy what he wanted as far as a house in Los Angeles. And and they started this whole scheme up to purchase a lot of land so that they could rent to whoever they wanted to. And Sam Jackson plays this like – first he seems like he's just like some nightclub lounge guy. But it turns out that he's also like an investor and has tons of money. And they, they go through this, like, this whole plan and then they decide that they want to buy a bank. And, you know, it's in the – I want to say early to mid 60s when a lot of this stuff was a big problem. I know it still is, but either way, it was a period piece, which I always like. It's a little bit of history, which I don't know a ton about. And then you're watching the human side of it, dramatization, all that. It is quality Sam Jackson. Really, I, I can't remember the last time I saw Sam Jackson sort of doing his thing, but not in a, um, you know, it's not Snakes on a Plane where he's like doing the Sam Jackson character. He's doing a character that sort of fit in the thing that he's doing. It's just, I thought it was a really nice little movie, really well acted and well made. I kind of just had it on my TV that one day, and I, and I just happened to catch it. And, I, and out of sort of, it's like that was, I think that was the first of sort of the streaming movies, I'm air quoting, you know, that, that I was like, oh, I think that's a real movie. I should watch that. I dug it. It was on my list, and I didn't watch it. Thank you for that addition. There you go. What was on my list, though, um, <laughs> was uh, Bad Education from uh, when it came out. I believe it was still on HBO now. It was an HBO film. It came out. On it was HBO. an HBO film, yeah. yeah but I it was regular HBO. I, I think I think it was pre HBO Max. But uh, Bad yes. Education. You take Hugh Jackman, one of my favorite actors of the 2000s. Which, by the way, Connor, just the other day I was thinking fondly about um, uh, what was the movie with uh, Ashley Judd. Anyone but you. With Ashley Judd. Yeah, with Ashley Judd. A great little romantic great, comedy, yeah. Another Hugh Jackman great movie. Hugh Jackman in a movie based on the real events of a financial scandal at a school district on Long Island. Count me in. Allison Janney. 
Allison Janney doing great Long Island accent. <laughs> they filmed it on Long Island. My, a friend of mine is a guidance counselor at the school that they filmed at. So like all very accurate. It's funny because, you know, the, the story of Roslyn High School and the creative accounting that went on there in that school district. My sister is this teacher. And before this movie was even in pre-production, you know, she would say that whenever budget stuff came up, they'd say, don't be Roslyn. We can't have another Roslyn. Right. <laughs> so, Which tells me they were more worried about the scandal than the actual theft. No, I mean, a little bit of both. I mean, honestly, it's a little bit of both. Really, really well done. The, the, the story is crazy and as wild as, you know, a school district financial scandal probably doesn't sound interesting, but the story does take twists and turns. I thought they handle it really well. It was a fun way to spend an evening. So I really liked it a lot. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. And also, it helped me reconnect with a woman I grew up with who was had a bit part in it. I was like, oh, I've oh. known her since I was one. Was it Allison Janney? Yeah, it was uh, I hadn't talked uh, to her in probably 20 years, so I reached out to her and said, hey, I just saw you in Bad Education, so it was nice. Oh, I go. know that it's ridiculous to say that Alice and Janney was amazing, but Alice and Janney was amazing. She's, yeah. But she's always amazing. I know, I know, that's what I mean. Like, it's, it's stupid to bring it up, but at the same time, I still was like, wow. Because every time you see her do something different, it's interesting in a, in a new way. She's got so much flexibility and so much, um, range? you know, like, she, yeah, range. Yeah, she's great. Another film meant for theaters, but ended up on... Netflix was The Trial of the Chicago 7 and the second film directed by Aaron Sorkin? Uh, I believe so. Molly's Game and then this. Yep. Which is the story of the Chicago 7 and much like Josh talked about The Banker and Ron's Bad Education, this was a true story that I didn't know anything about. Like, I knew the Chicago 7. I knew the name and yeah. the term. I knew vaguely it was about the Democratic and National I, Convention I knew in Chicago. some of the names. Yeah, you know, Abby Hoffman, you know, like Tom Hayden was familiar, he, he, mostly because he was married Bobby to Jane Seale. Fonda. Bobby Seale, like but I didn't know exactly the machinations of it. I didn't know what was, what was happening. Right. So this, I was very. Interested. I knew there was a riot in 1968, yeah. right. but that's about it. And I didn't know much about it. So when it was announced originally, I was very excited to see it in the theaters. And then it came out, and I watched it the day it came out on Netflix. Terrific cast: Mark Rylance, Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, wow. John Carroll Lynch. It, it, it's not Jared even Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, Michael Keaton, it's an absurd Frank cast. Langella, John Doman from The Wire. It's just a murderer's row of great actors. And it was a really interesting story. I don't know if it was a great movie, but I know it was really interesting and I liked watching it. I don't know that he's a great director. I know he's a terrific writer. He's one of my favorite writers. He's not a good director. Molly's Game was not good. I really enjoyed it. I watched it a couple times. I don't think he's a great director, but I don't think he's terrible. No, and, I don't and think, at terrible. The same I think time, he's terrible. He's pretty good at... I mean, we know he's a great writer, so he's pretty. At least he gets the, the scenes that make Sorkin writing Sorkin writing. He can capture those, and so I think my thing about this movie was at first I kind of, I was like I don't know what this is in a way because it was a lot of stuff happening, mm-hmm. and it, it really coalesced to the you know the sort of crescendo at the end. And so by the the sort of last bit in the, in the last act, I was like yes, you know I was totally you know in. At, for that point, but it did take me a while. I also should mention Yahya Abdul Mateen II, who, who was Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen, is also in it. It's a really good cast. And it, it's absolutely cast. worth watching, even if I don't think yes. he's a great director. I think it's a, he's still a good director, and the, the script is great, and this, the performances are really good. And there was a one joke. I had to pause it because I was laughing. I couldn't stop laughing. I don't remember what it was. I think it was when Jeremy Strong's character, Jerry Rubin, said, I think it was the manslaughter joke. But I, I just think that the delivery was so strong. It's worth watching. Ron, if only to see Michael Keaton do Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Oh, it's on the list. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to get there before the new year. I just didn't get to it before we did this. And I, I think I have to give Sasha Baron Cohen. He's very good at it. Specifically in that, like, I think I had just watched Borat. 
And then I went into this and for a little bit, I was like, that's a weird accent. And then I looked it up and Abby Hoffman, you know, had grown up outside of Boston. I was like, all right, that's weird. It works. He's kind of doing it well. And I thought, well, he's a little old for that. And I looked him up and I was like, no, he's actually not that much older than the guy was at the time. (laughs) And it's like a full commitment to that. And the same thing with Jeremy Strong, really. Those two, like like, Jeremy Strong, like I had to really like focus, like, who is that? Oh my God. Like it was one of those things. And it's one of those stories that just makes you angry. It's just, you know, just the injustice of the the 1960s for everybody. It'll just make you angry. And the way that... I mean, the one thing, if we're going to talk about a script, is that you keep thinking it's going one way, and then it goes the other way, and then it comes back the other way. It's an amazing... I think the script is amazing. Or, like, really... It was very good. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I wouldn't be surprised if you won another Oscar for it. I looked to see what the last movie that I saw in the theater was, and what I thought it was was The Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford, <laughs> which was pretty enjoyable for that kind of movie, I thought. But yeah, it that's turns up your out, alley. That's right up your alley. Oh, yeah. And there, was, there was a lot of good stuff about it. But it turns out what it was was The Gentleman, the Guy Ritchie movie. You saw it in the theaters. I did. I saw them because my birthday is at the very end of February, and we always go out and see a movie on my birthday. Mm. We get somebody to watch them, and we went you know, one day, I guess, probably the last weekend, weekend in February or first weekend in March. You slid right under the wire. Yeah, I know. It was in this, like we had like this specific amount of time. And the, the, the thing about my birthday is it's the time of the year with the shittiest movies. Yeah. It's the dumping it ground. Always That's, is. All we got was dumping ground this year. And so we had to be like, well, what can we go see during this time? And there weren't a lot of options. And so while I was a little happy about the gentleman trailer, new guy, Richie movie looked kind of cool. I was wary because you know, he hasn't had a great run lately. And Lindsay and I were absolutely delighted that, it was a great movie. Like it was super fun. Well, he returned to his roots. You know, he he went off yeah. and did like King Arthur and he did other stuff. But this was his return to like high functioning, low status British gangsters. Yeah, but done super fast. Yeah, I saw it later on Net. You know, yeah. Netflix. And I really enjoyed it. You've got you know a wonderful, wonderful performances from Hugh Grant and Matthew McConaughey and Colin Farrell, yeah. just. <laughs> owning the screen anytime he's on it with a super low-key performance all sorts of other things it was just as enjoyable as like having watched snatch forever ago well it's interesting, it's interesting that it was mcconaughey and hugh grant because yeah. i think hugh grant's starting to get into like a mcconaughey-esque resurgence where he's decided i'm only going to play assholes and yeah. he's, yeah. He's, he's getting like these great roles he, in, in the undoing on hbo and he was great in the gentleman playing this like skeevy character he's thrown off the shackles of rom-com hugh grant and just playing there was that british uh, miniseries last year oh uh yeah the, he was great he was the member of parliament yeah like he's just he's playing he was amazing at he's that. playing like real like the complete polar opposite of the characters he became famous for and he's doing a really mm-hmm. wonderful job in it so i, I thought it was really fun i really liked it, I liked it a lot. yeah it was a big surprise i, I kind of didn't expect it i was actually kind of when i looked i was like oh this is the last movie we saw in the theater that works i'm good with that ron what was the last movie you saw in the theater uh we're gonna talk about that in a little bit uh, unfortunately i didn't i didn't i didn't come out nearly as good as josh did <laughs> the last movie we saw there was 1917 in january like the first week of january Actually, but that doesn't, and that doesn't even Sonic count because that, that, that was a 2019 movie. Cover, right? right, and the thing is, like, I'm someone who goes to the movies almost every week. Yeah. I haven't been inside of a theater since January. Mine was February at least, but I'll get. To, should I go to it now, or do I, I need to do stick to the script? Here? Go with it. Go for it now. Okay. Well, the last the last movie I saw in the theaters was uh, <laughs> Impractical Jokers, the movie. Oh, man. Uh, uh, which, uh, <laughs> which... No, it's interesting. You, you have a lot theater. of explaining to do right now. I have no idea what this even is. It's a TV show. 
So the Impractical Jokers is a TV show on True TV that my nieces and my sister and my brother-in-law are all big fans of. Um, it's essentially for friends who, who, as far as I could tell, were born somewhere between 1975 and 1979. Who have, it's like middle-aged punk. Like middle-aged, they're middle-aged guys um, from Staten Island. They're in a comedy troupe or whatever, but they the Impractical Jokers is their basically candid camera TV show. Yeah. Which which has a slight twist because um, it's not just candid camera, like filming, you know, people in the real world with them being funny stuff. But there's a little bit of a competition aspect to it where they each have a challenge to do. And the person who loses the challenge at the end of the episode has to do a punishment. And it's something really embarrassing. And it's just like and it's it. But it's, it, it can be very funny at times when they connect. It connects very well. It's also like tri-state area humor at its best you know like like 25 percent of the allure is recognizing where they're filming like oh i know that park in brooklyn like it's just like <laughs> uh, or i've been to that supermarket but needless to say they've been on uh, tv for eight seasons now they are like true tv's gem of their network and so they got the movie treatment and so they did a movie of the show which of course they had to have like loose plot they needed to give a reason why there's a movie and then they just they just basically did their tv show but with better production value right and so put it versus jackass the movie same bar although minus um really any edge or like you know, like there was no cursing there was no like it, it like it took my youngest niece who was who was uh, at the time was an eighth grader like you know and and she loved it so went to the theater, went to see it opening weekend with them as part of a communal. Oh, let's all go. This is a thing we like. I, I'm not sure I would have picked it to be the last movie I saw in the theaters before <laughs> did the pandemic. Did you have a good time? I did have a good time, but I had a good time Family? because people. Was, yeah, exactly, exactly. No, imagine if the movies did go out of business. Like we, they shut it down. This yeah. would be on your epitaph. I know. Oh, I know. I'm, 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 I'm aware of that. And Keep that I'm in okay mind every time you go to the movies. It could be your last. Yeah, I'm okay with it. Usually when it's a TV title, colon, the movie, I mean, if you don't walk out of there with your skin crawling, you've done okay. Yeah. I will I will say that in the, I mean, barely, barely 90 minutes, barely a movie. In the 90 minutes, there was like maybe a good 10, 15 minutes that I laughed out loud and like, like, this is why I came. The rest of it was a little cringe inducing, but my family walked out. The girls loved it, but that's all that's important. The other opposite end of the spectrum Really opposite. Is John Lewis Good Trouble, the documentary about John Lewis, which came out, I think, two weeks before he died. It came out to streaming. I watched, I rented it on Apple. It's interesting. John Lewis, he was the famous congressman who, who passed this year. You probably saw many tributes to him. He was one of the marchers in Washington. He spoke at the march. He was a civil rights activist and leader. But I would say until fairly recently, he wasn't as popularly famous as some of the other people involved in, in the movement at the time in the 60s. I think he sort of came into, I'm going to say, popular consciousness. He was always a, a leader of the civil rights movement and always a leader in Congress. But I think, you know, maybe starting four or five years ago when he really became someone that everyone knew who he was. But I didn't know much about him other than the, those highlights. So we read the documentary and it was incredibly moving. So the point when he did pass away, I was like doubly sad that I think I probably would have been because I, I felt like it was such a great portrayal of him. It, it's his life, but also it talks to a lot of people in current politics about his influence and what he's actually done and what he's gone through. And he, he's, he had an incredibly interesting life, uh, incredibly interesting political career as well. And it made his passing all the more sad when, he, when, it, when it happened because 
I felt like I just got to know him. And it was it's an incredibly good documentary. If you're at all interested in politics or American history, the Civil Rights Movement, John Lewis Good Trouble is a, is a really great documentary. That would be me then. I've been meaning to watch this. I had the honor of meeting Representative Lewis before, several years ago at a book expo. Well, yeah, in our, in our subculture, he had March come out, multiple yep. award-winning three-part graphic novel about the March of Selma. He went to Comic-Con. He won Eisner's. Yep. Cosplayed as himself. Yeah, cosplayed. That was awesome. Yep. Let a little mark around Comic-Con, just as he was dressed in the 60s on the, on the bridge. Uh, at, Is that at okay? Bridge. I think it's okay. Yeah, I think it's okay. okay. When, that, when, when, it's, when somebody in the civil rights movement, it's okay. You, it's become a thing. It's, it's, it's almost do. like cosplay as politics, where you, know, you wear the backpack, you wear the coat, and you, you march for a cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seems like an incredibly nice man who endured more than anyone can probably imagine. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So I think that the social dilemma is probably one of the more affecting things that I watched this year. Just not just myself, but for other folks. Yep. For a movie that was half really interesting and good and introspective and half pointless. <laughs> I mean, like it really Well, it, was. it finally so, drove you off social media, so I think it's not totally pointless. Well, exactly. I'll get to it. Yeah, like, and I had been avoiding it in a way because, like, you know, my wife was like, we should watch this. And I'd seen everybody talking about it. I was like, I, I don't, I don't want to watch a thing that tells me how bad something I already know is bad. But I had also been this, you know, it was in the height of the pre-election season and I'm sort of watching everything that's going on. And it was sort of I was like, something's wrong. And I've been more coming to the conclusion that social media is largely the thing that's wrong. You can point out that almost everything that's wrong right now. Yeah. So I'm watching through it. And like, I know that my data is being collected. I understand how that works. It doesn't actually bother me all that much for whatever reason. Like you want to show me an ad, whatever. And I know that it's more insidious than that, whatever. But I think the thing that really put me over the edge that made me delete my accounts other than Instagram, and yes, I know that's owned by Facebook, but you can sell me ads, is the fact that everybody is seeing different things. And I think that that's the worst thing that's happening right now is that you only see the things that agree with what, you know, and so it should make you think, oh, wow, those other people think like this because they only see this thing. But it should also make you think, well, what am I not seeing? That should be the other side of that thing. And it was the thing that made me sort of drop me over the edge. And then the last thing I think that got me is the fact that, you know, you're talking about companies that there's no regulation, there's no rules. They can do literally whatever they want and they're not doing the right things, even though that's kind of their public image that they are. And and that really, that was the thing that made me, uh, you know, delete Facebook and Twitter for good. And, and I've gotten a lot of good out of those over the years, although less so in the last few years. So, I think it's important to watch. I really did like seeing Pete Campbell do something, but the dramatic portion of that was like, I don't know what the fuck that was for. It was so... I haven't seen it, but I saw an interview with the director and I saw clips of it and that was interesting. You know, like you'd be watching really cogent arguments from people who are in the know about stuff and then they, they switch over to this terrible, like dramatized bit with like real actors. <laughs> like it's, it's just, it was very strange. It's almost weird enough that that part's worth watching. Yeah, so you should watch it if you hadn't. I haven't watched it yet. I'll leave it at that. I have I have lots of thoughts and challenges to some of the stuff that you just said, but I'll save it for another another discussion. <laughs> because you know, 
if I had to pick one nonfiction docu documentary <laughs> to pick my documentary of the year, it would be the one about <laughs> the, the stupid amusement park in Vernon, New Jersey that I grew up with, always wanting to go that I never uh, never got to go to. Um, which, which it turns out, probably the best. Probably, yeah, probably a good idea. Class Action Park is on HBO Max, another one that we talked about on the on the Media Explode, so you can go back and listen to that in detail, but a humorous and then slightly turning sad look at the life and death of Action Park in New Jersey, which was an insane uh, amusement park in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Chris Gethard was probably the most famous person featured in it as, a, as an interviewee because he actually grew up in the area. I and have went a, to, I and have went a to comment it. about him when you've completed Okay. So much of this tale of this year is what's a fun way I can spend the evening? You know, just w- watch something. And be <laughs> so we're just desperate for something that's not terrible. Just give me, give me, give me an hour and a half where I can just forget everything else. So this is a fun kind of revisiting. You know, the the commercials of my childhood and the longing to go somewhere and have fun. It, it was yeah. So it was it was amusing. There you go. I think what's your, you what's your gethard comment? I think you had mentioned this when we talked about it before. Is that at the end it really didn't know what it was. And I think that it didn't stick the landing in that way. Whereas, like, the, the beginning is, this was crazy. Then they got into, this was really dangerous. And then at the end, yeah. it was, but this was crazy. And Gethard, at the beginning, talks about it. He's like, yeah, I always wanted to go there, and I did. But, you know, it was really dangerous and awful. And then at the end, he's like, yeah, but we lived back then, and they don't do it now. And I was like, make up your fucking mind. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. It re- like, it really bothered me. Because I mean, the thing is, like, it really goes from like, and this kid died, and his family went after them forever, and there's no one held this man accountable. But do you remember that crazy water slide? Like (laughs) on a dime. Like it was the weirdest thing. Like they were like, we don't know what to do with this. Let's just put it up. (laughs) It's 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 the wave pool when you yeah you know like you shouldn't you shouldn't shut down your wave pool after the second person died. You shut down the fucking wave pool after one person dies. (laughs) (laughs) So Ron, did it make you still want to go? I mean, ten-year-old Ron, hundred percent wanted to go. Oh my God, the go karts! Would you go right now if it was open again? Uh, God no, God no. (laughs) It's a death trap. Go karts did sound fucking great. (laughs) They really did. There you go. See. (laughs) So I think the Uh, first big film that after the pandemic happened was announced moving from theaters to streaming was The King of Staten Island. Is that correct? I believe that was. I think so. Yeah, I remember that was the. This was the um, Judd Apatow-directed film starring Pete Davidson, loosely, loosely, loosely based on his life experiences, which is the kind of what Judd Apatow does. He did it with uh, Amy Schumer. This movie was interesting. Ron, did you end up watching it? I'm not yet. It's on the list. I, I did not watch it yet. <laughs> I, I felt about it how I feel about most Apatow films in that he really needed to tighten it up. It's two yeah. hours and 16 minutes, which isn't like egregiously long, but it's That's long. pretty long. That's long. Somebody should be like, listen... You need to fit this within two hours. Like, th- that's, yeah. And it's been all of them for a while. Yeah. Pete Davidson is an actor comedian who's on Saturday Night Live. He became famous from joining the cast super young, and his father died in 9 11 as a firefighter. And so, in this story, he's this guy, he's from Staten Island. And he, in the film, he's just burned out in Staten Island living with his mom. His father died in 9 11. I'm sorry, his father died fighting a fire. Not on 9 11, but fighting a fire. And so that sort of basic core of who he is, he's not a famous actor or comedian. He's just this burnout guy who smokes a lot of pot in his in mom's basement. And then the story is basically him coming out of that world and sort of growing up a little bit. And parts were really enjoyable. Parts were really funny. Bill Burr plays the guy dating his mom's mom, Marissa Tomei. Um, 
to me, I thought the best parts were the surprisingly were the parts where it got serious and they let him get dramatic and emotional and angry. And I feel like he really tapped into something that he must be feeling all the time. Not surprised to hear that watching him just in life. Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, he's clearly still really fucked up about his dad dying. And when the part, the scenes where they played into that aspect of, I thought were really compelling, less compelling were the comedy stuff, which I think is very funny. I think he's great on Saturday Night Live, but it just felt very rote until it got to the the really emotional stuff. Also, uh, Steve Buscemi's in it, who was a real life New York city firefighter. It's got a great cast of characters. There's a couple of people who I wasn't sure if they were actors or not, if they just found them on Staten Island to play side characters. It had good bits to it. I think that's all of Apatow's films. They have really good bits. Sure. But overall, you're like, what is the point of this? What is this movie trying to say? And I don't really know. And it's also still got another half an hour. <laughs> that so tends to be how they go. That's the thing that had me slightly worried about it because because uh, when it when it came out, this is the whole thing about what, how much you're going to pay for it, right? right? And I've just been waiting for it to get to the lower rental price. But even then, for us now with the with the kids and work and sleep, it's like oh, I check the runtime of a movie before we watch it, and it's like oh, two sixteen, like how, <laughs> like I, I fully expected that to be like a nice, you know, like hundred minutes maybe, you know. Shut up! I hasn't even gotten to the story in hundred minutes, oh, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. I thought the Amy Schumer film really worked. That was the best one of the ones that I've seen. Yes, that was the best oh, one. But you know, like. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to get into a whole job discussion. I think he's really t- funny and talented. I think he's a terrific producer. Yeah, uh, yeah but I agree. think the films he directs are often too long, and I don't have a point. And I thought this was kind of in that realm. But their performances are really good. I think it's worth watching. It would have been very interesting to see how it would have done box office wise if they had actually put it out in theaters. I don't think it would have done that well. Probably not. Right. Yeah. I had gone through a little Hamilton phase a couple of years ago. I had the soundtrack, you know, you and everybody I to it for a bit. I know, I mean, I know me and everybody, but I'd kind of, you know, moved along. And then the the movie, which again was supposed to be theatrical, and was it something like the highest rate ever paid to acquire the license of a film or something like something that? Something like that, yeah. Because they shot it like a while ago, and it yeah. had just been sitting on it. And it was the shot on the stage with the original cast and and everything. So I was, you know, I was familiar with the music. I I don't think I maybe once made it all through the soundtrack, you know, without like sort of going and doing something else. So I got a vague idea of sort of how it all fit together. And I kind of knew what the story was anyway. So it came on Disney and, and my wife's like, I want to watch that. And it's funny because I tried to play her the object. Like, I don't really care. And it, I think it, it really solidified what was great about it because it's a play and you should see it. And the story was actually incredibly clear, you know, when you're watching it, that something didn't come through, but also I don't care about musicals. I just, I just don't. But there are performances in there that really will, there are many people who will be doing their thing and you're just like, oh my God, that is so much talent. Like, that's actually singing. You don't actually see people sing like that very often. And the specificity and the intricacy of, of the choreography and all those things, I was really impressed by it. And like, not only, you know, my wife, but like, I know several other people who, Again, we're not interested in it a couple of years ago. I was like, this is really good. Now they're totally all about it. Like they got converted. Um, and it's cool. Like, I, you know, I can't remember the last time I, I've, I've never really been to a Broadway show. I don't think I know ever. <laughs> no. How many years did you live in New York? I'm not interested in it. Not even a play. Uh, that's no. uh, well, it's not even that. Like at the time, cats? also that's unfortunate. Listen, listen, at the time that I lived in New York, I have never had less money. Did you go to the Winter Garden Theater? Did we get at least cats? At least cats. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you guys remember, but we quit our jobs 
to do iFanboy. And the conversation was, so what's the least amount of money you can live on? <laughs> so a three to $400 night wasn't really in the offing. <laughs> Pageantry. There are ways to go cheaper, though. The, the, the TKTS yeah, booth or like Today Ticks is a great app where you get cheaper tickets. It's possible. You could do it. But no, but 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 it, the, the point you had made, though, is that, you know, I, I feel like, you know, because the Hamilton Broadway, at least the, the original cast Broadway run run was so prohibitively expensive that, you know, millions of people who got into it only got into it from the soundtrack. Right. And if you didn't live in New York or you didn't come to New York often or you couldn't afford it. Or even after the original cast went away, it was still prohibitively expensive. It's not even the expense, like yeah. just getting a ticket, right? Like winning a lo- literally winning a lottery ticket in some instances. I entered the L.A. Hamilton lottery every day for six months. Yeah, my sister still enters well, before the pandemic. My sister was still entering the New York lottery and had never won. They stopped doing it here. Yeah, and the thing about it is, you know, I, I now this is where I sound like the asshole, but I was fortunate enough to see it, not the original cast, but I was, you know, was able to see, I think, the second way, the second cast. Were uh, there any holdovers, or is it all? Different? I think there was a couple, but nobody notable. By the time I saw it, I think everybody, everybody you w- would want to see was long gone. But seeing it in its intended entirety there's stuff that you pick up in watching it that you don't yeah. pick up by listening from the soundtrack like you know like you know i'll get you know it's easy to joke about lin-manuel miranda and his whole linness popping up everywhere and all that sort of stuff but like it really is a work of art oh you yeah know, like the, the, the way he uses this use the songs and layered in to move the narrative and the conversations like the one that got me when we watched the movie on disney plus which I forgot about after seeing in the theater, which I don't even know if I caught so much in the theater was the early on. It was the, um, it was the one where the loyalists, like the farmer's lament or whatever it is, where the loyalist was arguing against revolution and Hamilton was arguing with him. And there was so much crosstalk and subtle, you know, who's looking at who, when they're talking to each other to understand what's going on. And if you just listen to the soundtrack, you don't get that. So, yeah, it, I, I, I was, wait, was Lynn Manuel Miranda like still the lead when you saw it? No, no. Okay. That's really yeah. interesting. He was one of the first to go. Yeah. So two things about that. One, one of the things that was confusing about just the soundtrack is that a lot of the people played two roles. And so in the yeah. second half, I did not follow that. The Lafayette guy was the same guy as Jefferson. S- so good. Yeah, no, no. Davy Dix is Davy Dix is so good, so. But good. he's not even like he stands out for a certain thing. But there's other people. Like, the dude who played Washington was amazing. And the mm-hmm. dude, you know, every like every like lots of people. Anyway, so in the middle of that, you've got Lin Manuel Miranda who is a competent singer. He hits the no. notes and everything, but he's not a <laughs> great singer. You know, <laughs> right? He's not a great singer, but every time he makes a sound, you know, it's him. And I think in that instance, that works because his voice always stood out, and he was always the same character. So. He worked as a linchpin through the whole thing really well. And I think that came across when I was watching it more so than listening to it because nobody sounds like him that I can think of. Certainly not in that context. Yeah. You're, you're describing why I didn't listen to the soundtrack before seeing it. I was, I had had people like you, you won't listen to it. Like, no, Mm -hmm. I, I, it's especially for something like that where the entire show is saying, so you're not, it's not like you get songs out of context. You don't know what's happening. It's like you can quote unquote, watch the show again by listening to the soundtrack. And I don't want to have it spoiled. I wanted to watch it for the first time on stage or uh, this turns out on Disney plus. Yeah. Ron, do you get a nickel every time somebody says Disney plus? I do not. Okay. Not even cats, Josh. (laughs) All right. So to round this out, my last movie I want to talk about is the one that I literally is the last movie of the year I saw before recording this and that I watched it last night. It's called The Sound of Metal, streaming on Amazon Prime. It w- was released in theaters on November 20th, Connor, so it is a movie. Okay. It tracks. 
Josh, you've got to see this movie. And this I, I'm, movie, I'm planning to. We just, yeah. It just came out, right? I was watching. It just came out. Yeah, it just came out. And and I got to say that you mentioned earlier about Greyhound, where you wish you could have seen it in the theater. Yeah. I wish I could have seen this in the theater because basically the premise is uh, Riz Ahmed, or Riz Ahmed, Riz Ahmed, who who was in Rogue One, it was in the Night of on HBO. He plays a a drummer in a metal band, or like a. a it's it's funny because the, the it says this. I'm gonna get the music nuance here or whatever, but like. It's easy, like reading the summary, it's like a drummer in a heavy metal band, but like that co- brings up so many connotations of like hair metal and stuff like that. But like it, th- throughout the movie, he's wearing a Youth of Today uh, hoodie, right? So I'm like, oh, okay. And like the band was like a band I would go see. Like it was more like on a hardcore there's, side of things. There's a hardcore metal crossover that kind of doesn't yes. exist now. No, it does exist a lot, actually. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Well, yeah. when yeah. you talk about it, it does, like people, like when you think right. about, this is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Basically. Metal, metal influence, hardcore. Well, now I'm getting the yes. music way more. But anyway, but so he plays a drummer in this band, and and the band is just him and his girlfriend, right? So she's on guitar and she's singing, and and he's playing drums. And in the first 15 minutes of it, he goes deaf. And basically, the rest of the movie is how he deals with this sudden change in his entire identity and how he copes with it and the decisions he makes and all that sort of stuff. They really did a great job with the audio production to make you the moment it happens where everything's muffled and you can barely hear anything. I think right? that's in the trailer. Like, so. Yeah, they, they, do, they do such a great job of that. And essentially what happens is, is that his girlfriend finds for him a rehab clinic for people who go deaf. And so it's a place where he can learn to be deaf and deal with it deal with the feelings and all the sort of stuff and you kind of watch that kind of journey and then you know then he tries to figure out what to do with his life and it was gripping it was it was intriguing it, it kept it held you on and the movie was a little over two hours and it, it really just just a great movie just really really good like it was funny because like i saw a bunch of uh, chatter about it like it, it apparently did well at the last sundance and and there was a bidding war and all the stuff and amazon got it and, and all this sort of stuff and i read some stuff in entertainment weekly about it and it was just like all right well this i had a lot of hype going into it and it totally paid off like i'm like oh okay i get it i see what i see what happened here so i don't want to spoil what happens in it josh i strongly recommend it for you connor oh. i would rec- I'd recommend it for you as well really really good sound of metal it's on amazon prime so those are some of the films we enjoyed this year. Maybe all of the films, actually, we, we saw this year. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm honestly impressed we came up with 15. I'm honestly impressed. I, didn't I struggled. At one point, I was at four, and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. So, <laughs> But the one thing everyone has been doing this year, as we've been stuck inside, has been evidenced by our media explode shows, has been watching television on the various services, even a little bit of uh, network TV. And we're going to talk about the shows, some of the shows, just, just some, just some of the shows we enjoyed this year. Because there's a limit. I want to lead off with my favorite show. Usually when it comes out, it's my favorite show of the year. That's The Crown. It's the fourth season that hit this year. The fourth yes. season. Watched the entire season on the day it came out. Uh, got up early. Made tea. Watched the whole season. That's insane, by the way. That's a lot of show. Ten episodes. Yeah, but like, you, there's a lot going on. you got to pay attention. Yeah. yeah, that's the best way. It's like reading a graphic novel. What was interesting about this season, first of all, it was excellent. And it was one of the better seasons. But also... What was interesting about it was that it's the first one that really sort of crosses over with the time in our lives where we're not only alive, but I remember. Yeah. So that made it weird because it's always been this interesting period piece show. You know, it starts off in the 40s, the 40s, 50s, 60s, and now we're into the 80s and Prince Charles marries Princess Diana and you've got Margaret Thatcher. And these are all things I I remember. So at one point, I remember one of the characters dances to Billy Joel and I was like, oh, like this is way too close. It's, It's supposed to be a period piece. If you've been following the show from the very beginning and watching the lives of all these characters and where they are now and just the weight of the crown 
essentially on all of them is is sort of coming to a head for everybody. It's, it was just a terrific season, and I thought Gillian Anderson's Margaret Thatcher oh my was God. terrific. I saw people complaining that it like humanized her and made her nicer. Like she comes off as a monster in the show. Like, I don't understand totally. that at all. I mean, it's humanized her in the fact that you're like, oh, this is a real person, right. and you kind of saw she's where a she human was coming being, from. But she's but, also a monster. So like that, yeah, like it it didn't justify it explained. No. Yeah. And also, like when she showed up, I was I was like, who is that? Like I had to look. She's it up. been living in England for like the last ten years. Yeah. Oh no, she she de- she shows up in British shows. Yeah. I don't see. I, that's all I've seen. She's her with in the guy years. who does the crap. Oh, who also wrote like all these? He wrote great movies. He did yeah. Frost Nixon. He mm-hmm. wrote The Queen, which yep. I which actually the other day I went back and tried to watch The Queen, and it was such a different depiction. Like the script was fine, but it was such a different dis- depiction of the woman, the Queen. I couldn't do it. I was like, ah, I can't. <laughs> It's like she was kind of like it was Helen Mirren. She was kind of like snarky. And I was like, what? So I think you talked about this last year. And I watched all of them this season Mm -hmm. or this year since then. I I think it's great. The casting is amazing. And I think that it's odd because, you know, different people have played the same characters. And for the most part, it's pretty seamless. You buy them in the... The I guess the portrayal of those people is pretty consistent in that way, and each one gets two. So this is the last season for this group, and they're aging them up again for the next (laughs) season. Yeah, and uh, you know it's funny is that like I know Olivia Colman. Like I've been I've been a fan of her for years. I've seen her. I always thought of her as a comedy person, and I completely, completely lost track that it was her. And it's funny because she's like a tall lady, and the Queen is not a tall lady, but she worked it. Yeah, they didn't quite do Hobbit stuff, but it was yeah, that was pretty funny. I, if it humanizes anybody, it humanizes Prince Philip, I think, because he's kind of been a joke for a long time, and I, I really like the way that he'd been portrayed too. Yeah, it, it just was a really heavy season. You know, it opens up with Northern Ireland, and, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just from there you just, into the Falklands, just downhill through. from there, <laughs> just just like yeah. Uh, it's not a good I'm not, period of time. I, I'm in no way interested in the royals as a thing, but as a sort of conduit to history and stuff that I kind of knew about, and really good, just sort of character writing and drama i th- i think so if you're thinking i don't really care about any of that stuff i don't either but it is interesting and it's a sumptuous production i mean mm-hmm. they they spent so much money on this show the, yeah the production values is is incredible the costumes these sets it's mm-hmm. just the actors they get it's just <laughs> you th- just say the pageantry that's what the you want the pageantry ron there the you pageantry go. i want i want off the charts moral. i know that <laughs> i love me some pageantry you don't want to live in Buckingham Palace. It's apparently no. I want to live in Balmoral. I want to stalking. <laughs> I, I, I want. I want to drive a Range Rover by myself <laughs> on all those old roads. That sounds great. For my money, Fargo's the best show on television over the past number of years in terms of just casting and beautiful writing and and uh, like amazing cinematography. I've loved every season of it. So the fourth season came out this year. Fourth, yeah. Fourth, yeah. Fourth. I think it was like two year break. I think. I think it was one of the best things I saw, but I also think it was the worst season of the show. One hundred percent. I was really worried you were going to say they were going to say it was the best. I, I thought I really no. loved watching it every week because I think again, it, yeah. the writing is great. The act, they get great actors. The production oh, I, values. I think it's the best show on. It's a period it's piece. Just the worst of them. It, it was the easily the worst season. Easily yeah. the worst season. It was a mess. So this takes place in uh, I think it's nineteen fifty. Yeah, the fifties in in Kansas City. Um, where there's an element of sort of local organized crime there, including you know Cosa Nostra, which is sort of reached out and has a station there, and there's a, there's a there's a boss there. Well, Kansas City's um, always been a big mob town. Yeah, yeah, always. It's, yeah, it's that that. It was, it's the Midwest people hub. Don't, people don't think of it that way. No, but it is, is the yeah. point. So Chris Rock is the the leader of the Black Gang, and Jason Schwartzman is pretty much is the leader of the Italian gang. And there's there's other stuff to go through there. Either way, to all that, I I think that there's the two weaknesses that I've been able to 
pin down is that in all the other three seasons, the show revolved around the one good cop. Yep. So in the movie, it's Marge Gunderson. You know, it was Carrie Coon in season three. I forget her name. Maggie Salverson was the character's yep. name in season two and, and, and on and on. And that really was the moral center of the show. And it was the thing that made you go, okay, not everything is terrible. And I kept looking for that character, and that didn't exist in this season. No, there was not. And they, they, I think they tried to set it up like it would be the daughter of the mortuary. Yeah. She disappears for three quarters of the show. And even then... She had no point. My problem was it had too much going on. It had too many plot lines and too many characters who didn't end up yeah. me- meaning anything. And Yeah, a lot of people got killed out of nowhere. But But the thing is, throughout the whole thing amazing performances from some people. Timothy Oliphant comes on and does his character. Yes, he's a marshal because he's (laughs) Timothy Oliphant, but it's a totally different kind of character that he's playing. I can't think of the guy's name, but he played the half-face guy in Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, who's amazing. From the legendary Houston family. Yeah, and he played this detective who was crooked, but also had either Tourette's or some kind of OCD OCD. thing. He had OCD. Really bad OCD. You know, every time before he walked in a room, you hear... You know, like, and you're like, what is that? And they just keep it up. And he was really fascinating to watch. And for me, the big problem, Chris Rock's not a great actor. No, he's not. I mean, this is clearly the best work he's ever done, but... He only has one speed. Like, yeah, and the problem just... also is, like, I never bought him as a boss of a crime family. Like, I bought yeah. I bought Senator... What was it? Senator oh, my God. President? Dr. Senator. Dr. Senator, Dr. Senator. From, the, from The Wire. I bought him as the boss, but I didn't buy Chris Rock as the boss at all. What's his name? Glenn Turman or Glenn... Yeah. I think it's Glenn Turman. I love that guy, but this yeah. is this is the best performance I've ever seen on him, and I, he was amazing. Like he just, yeah, you're like you're right. He had all of that presence. Like Chris I kept Rock wondering why they were following Chris Rock. I was like, I like Chris Rock, but I don't understand why any of these guys are following what his his lead is. Well, I was watching Chris Rock, and like he really only had kind of one face. Like it, it was always kind of the same, and and he he didn't bring a lot of humanity to the thing. The kid who played his son was amazing, and we find out there's a connection with him to another show and um, another season. Oh, sure. what's his name? The uh, Rabbi Mulligan. Rabbi Milligan. Can't think of the act. Ben. Ben. Uh, ben Wishaw. Wishaw. Yeah. He was fantastic. I also thought Jason Schwartzman wasn't quite right either because he was sort of silly. The woman who plays the crazy nurse who was in Chernobyl, and she's I, like, pointless. I think you're going to start seeing her in everything. She's the Irish actor. She was fantastic. She was great, but kind of pointless ultimately. Like, it's just like this ultimately, this yeah. like pointless. All this, we spent a lot of time on stuff that was, ended up being pointless. Well, I actually watched through all of this show before I started this one, and there were characters like that who kind of came and were really interesting. I don't know. I, I think I think ultimately you're, you're right. It was great to watch. There's a black and white episode that is very focused that I think was the best episode of the season. It yeah. just had two characters in it. And it was, again, like nothing I'd ever seen. And it sort of tied into the previous seasons. It's, it's worth noting that this was a show that they started filming and then they didn't get yes. to finish until in the middle of the pandemic. So there's a little bit of a stutter step to it. I don't think and I don't think that that showed. No, I don't like I didn't get the sense like, oh, here's where it's different. I mean, you didn't notice that everybody was six feet apart suddenly. Not really, and I was aware that that was just a thing. Kidding. This is not, oh, no, this is that, a joke. I don't know. that makes sense. Let's stop talking about Fargo. Okay, I could talk about it for another half an hour, but I, we, we, I know we don't have time. I enjoyed watching it, even though I thought every week I was like, "Oh, this season is rough," but I enjoyed watching it. Mm-hmm. Ron, I could talk about this show for a half an hour too. By the way, I know. Me too. Are you caught up? By the way, yes. I'm okay, not. cool. You're so, not caught up. Um, oh! I know, so I, I, I figured that I, I all week. and I didn't. I didn't want to talk about it because I know, I know, you know. Just in case, I'm sure everyone that listens to this is caught up. But still, just in case you never know, at the time of recording, though, The Mandalorian is probably the only show 
that comes out on Friday and then I am sweating until, you know, till the moment I, we can watch it. Like oftentimes trying to watch it on Friday night, if not at least by Monday, because it's just so tight and condensed. The, la- the episode, the last episode, which was possibly one of the best one was less than 30 minutes. Yeah. So tight and so condensed, but it's so tapping into our world that I've been mainly off social media for the day after it comes out because if I haven't watched it yet because I don't want to be spoiled. I've been spoiled almost every episode by like news email, like, you know, yeah. like news alerts. Like, this character just appeared on the Mandalorian. Fuck you, it's 8.30 in the morning. I know. It's really brutal. It's really brutal. It's, a, it's one of the, the rough things about rush it. rush for clicks. But part of it is the fact that it's getting Star Wars right in so many ways. And I'm seeing a lot of articles now comparing The Mandalorian to the sequels, to the last trilogy, to 7, 8, 9, and saying it's, you know, it, it's going right where those those movies went wrong. And that's a much larger conversation. I want to go, go into that as a, you for know, us. for us, for, you know, like, I feel like we are as much as we, even though we were born after the, the born before the movie, or most of us were born before the movie came out, Connor. Yeah. I was in the womb. What do you want? You weren't Barely there. Squeaked in. You were fucking I, uh, in the newborn. You weren't in the theater. Yeah. Don't even try to pull that shit on me. Old. Although my parents claim they, they took me in, to see it in the theater within the first two months of my life. but That was inappropriate, um, too. True, but it was the 70s. <laughs> and everybody in the theater was probably smoking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, despite us being alive when the movie came out, I consider ourselves like second generation because we grew up on it and, and yes. like we weren't there for the phenomenon and all that sort of thing. But the fact is that we did grow up on it and our approach to Star Wars is much different than the kids who grew up with the prequels which is much different than the kids who grew up with the cartoons right and which is much different than the kids who grew up with the latest trilogy but it's just getting star wars right in tone and in manner and in just like expanding the world but staying very focused off but but staying very focused on the story and tapping into some jedi stuff but not too much and it's just like it's just getting it right week in and week out, you know, in a world of binging and on demand and all stuff. Like that. I love that it's released weekly. I love that it's an event. I love that it's must see TV like, you know, of, of now, you know, as a Star Wars fan, I, you know, I thought after episode eight and episode nine, I was like, all right, cool. Let me let me find something else. But this has just brought me back into the world again. And I just and I love it. So, uh, I, yeah, I can't I say two, enough about two it. notes that I will add. The first one is very simple, and it's Mon Calamari fishing sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, no, it doesn't make sense, but I was like, fuck yeah. That's like vision in a sweater vest. I was yeah, down with that. Great. Two is, I don't care how hard-hearted you are. If the child doesn't make you... Oh, it kills oh, me. Oh, my God, that's adorable. <laughs> then, you can, like, honestly, like, maybe the single smartest sort of marketing thing I that wasn't. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah brilliant on two levels and you know we go back to the fact like that they didn't leak it and so there was no merch available is kind of amazing they still get they still made their money yeah <laughs> they're still gonna sell it they didn't lose a single cent they just waited a little while to, to do it but every like anybody in the world walks into that show and sees that thing and is sucked in yeah yeah i know, I know people who watch it they don't care anything about the mandalorian but they watch it for the baby yeah. sure very it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to not see that kid and, and having babies of my own and just be like, oh, and like melt, right? And like connected. It's just, <laughs> so I think we'll have to table this until maybe next year when it's over and we have a media split that we can do. Because yeah. there's things I'd love to say right now, but I can't because it'll ruin it for Josh. Agreed. Thank Agreed. you. Because this last episode brought up a lot of stuff. And this is the last episode before we're recording, which is weeks before we were actually putting this out. So you may not know. Yeah. You may think I'm talking about a future episode. I'm going, what the fuck is he talking about? It was a different episode. 
Star Trek Picard was almost like that for me, Ron. Oh, so good. I talked about this on the media explode briefly. It was like a warm blanket and coming back to the world of the next generation and having it done in a high quality style with terrific directing and writing and great actors, great characters. I was looking forward every week. It was a Friday. It was a Friday. It was Thursday or Friday. I can't remember what CBS does. I think it's Friday. Thursday. What's funny is that all the shitty Thursday. shows used to be on Friday, and now all the great shows are released on Friday. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm pretty sure it was Thursday though. I know Discovery comes out. I think on it was Thursday, but I always watch it Friday, and it was just like I would race to get to, to be the point where I could watch yep. Picard of that yep. week. It, it, to see Star Trek done. On a weekly basis, on a TV format, which I think we've had this discussion, is probably the best format for Star Trek. And done in such a high-quality way. Because, look, the old shows were terrific, and I love them to death, but they weren't shot like these shows are shot now. They aren't shot like films. And I realize all these characters had films, but this is different when you're watching it week to week over an hour. Just to be back with Picard and be back with Data and Riker and Troy and all those characters again, it just was... It's the most joy I've had watching Star Trek in years and years and years. And I'm, I mean... I was someone who, in that dark period of time where there was no Star Wars, was you know a huge Star Trek fan. I was thinking about all the, the, my favorite shows of the year, and Star Trek Picard bubbled up right up there. Picard is up there. I mean, I give I give credit to Discovery. It's still mid season, so it's like hard, you know, like in in trimming down to five. But Discovery is like in the six to ten list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it, between it, Picard it's and Mandalorian. Great. It's just two great yep. shows from yep. you know worlds that I loved as a kid. Yeah, good stuff. I'm so glad it was good. I'm yeah. so glad it was good. I want to talk about the right stuff, which was also on Disney Plus, and I believe came on Fridays as well. Oddly enough, all, um, all Disney Plus releases are. I think all shows come out on Friday. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I think I talked about this last year, is that I had read, listened to the audiobook, which I'd never read, and I was blown away by it for several reasons. And I had seen the movie before, but with the context of having read the book, I went back and watched the movie, and it it's brilliant, also. And so this show came out, and I thought huh, that's, that's kind of interesting. And I had a, had a friend of mine, or my cousin actually, was like, they got John Glenn all wrong, and he was really mad. And I, I sort of started watching it, and for a couple episodes, it takes me to adjust to the fact that this isn't the movie. And I kind of got into it, because A, at that time in history, is really fascinating. It's a little more of a drama take on everything, but again, having just read the book long before, I, I don't think it was that far off. Some of the things... I was like, that didn't happen. But then I also thought the book was written 40-something years ago, almost 50 years ago. So maybe some new shit has come to light. So, so let, let me ask you, because so I watched this. I really enjoyed it. Um, not into this stuff as much. I mean, I'm into space and all this sort of stuff, but you, you're way more into the specifically the right stuff. I haven't seen the yeah. movie for years. I saw it years ago. Oh, God, you got um, Did Alan Shepard walk around in his boxers and no shirt that often as he did on the show? <laughs> I because I it just seems like at least two or three times an episode he's in that bathrobe in his boxers walking in the rain. And, and, and don't get me wrong, the actor is quite handsome. Well, I think that the character's kind of a piece of shit. So <laughs> as an American hero, they had to give him something. Like, let's make him sexy. But also, raging drunk. So possibly... It, yeah. Like that was crazy. So what's interesting is that a the last episode happened. I didn't realize it was the last episode. So actually this week I was like, all right, new episode. Oh, well that was all. And I don't know if there's going to be more, Ron. Maybe you do. They, they, Although there wouldn't I, really be. I believe it point. was. I believe it was renewed for a second season. Really? Because I don't know if there's a point. Because it ends with you know, unless they go into Gemini and. The is there a point? Or, is never a question asked by people who are renewing TV I know. shows. I know, but I always want to think that there's somebody telling a story. I mean, like, this is what... Yeah, so on like, November 20th, we'll, the season was granted a tax credit to film potential second season. Okay. Potential. The show, so is yet to be, the, the show is yet to be officially renewed. Okay. So, so yeah. 
it's you know like the the one place I've seen that is Damon Lindelof saying I don't I don't really want to do any more Watchmen. I'm like good, don't. But you never know. Anyway, so I was looking up something on IMDb and I started looking at the the reviews and everyone in the reviews were mad. They were like they weren't like this. These are heroes and whatever. And I was like, did you read the book? Yeah. Because they were drunken philanderers. Like they they were test pilots. Yeah. They were test pilots, and that whole book yeah. is about what that is like. But they're not heroes in the sense of faultless, you know, American heroes. And they, you know, they are in that way. But I, I didn't feel like the characterization of them was off at all. And I really, you know, Ed Harris is not whoever the John Glenn guy is. But I thought that guy did a really good job at sort of getting the straight arrow thing, but showing being, that he was being also sanctimonious. Human. Yeah, but he was at, yeah, in a yeah. way. But like the book actually pre- presents him as an angel. You know, and he's all good, and I, I don't really buy that. If anything, at first it was difficult because there was a lot of people, and you kind of didn't know who was who. You know, I knew who they were, and I didn't know who was who. But they kind of leave those people behind after a while. Like, you don't spend a lot of time with Gordon Cooper. So fine. You don't sp- spend any time with uh, Shira or any of those, you know, and you sort of focus on the ones. And maybe that's what they would do going forward. I liked it ultimately in the end. I think it did justice to that that kind of thing in that time era. And they left out Chuck Yeager, and I understand why. You know, and there's a book and there's a movie for those you're things. You're not going to beat Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager. No, well, you're not. I want to watch that movie again right now. <laughs> it's so good. Get your beamins and go watch it. Well, after watching the TV series, we're like, oh, let's watch the movie. And it was over Thanksgiving. We're like, all right, let's sit down and watch it. How long is it? Oh, it's very long. long. It's, it's very long. three hours. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's one of my all-time favorite it's, movies. It is great. Yeah. yeah. Earlier, in one of, I think, feel like in one of the first media explodes earlier this year, I talked about one of my favorite shows of this year, which was on Hulu. Was, was that this year? It was. Yeah. Um, okay. It was the updated pseudo-reboot TV adaptation of High Fidelity. Uh, not a TV adaptation of the movie per se, but you know, going back to the novel, for, uh, going back to the original novels, the source material, and adapting it into a record store in Brooklyn owned by a twenty-something woman. But all the DNA of Nick Hornby's High Fidelity was there. All the music snobbery was there. Um, slightly updated. The cast was great. The record store employee that worked under her with the curly hair, I felt like stole the show. When they did the single episode about him, I thought that was great. Good breaking the fourth wall, but not too much. You know, some odd choices in terms of having specific line reads exactly as they were in the movie, which we talked about in the media explode, which I still find odd now that I think back on it. And the fact that High Fidelity wasn't renewed for a second season was just like such a disappointment because that was it was two weeks or so it took us to watch the full series we were just like enthralled and couldn't stop watching it and so yeah high fidelity was just great as a music fan as a fan of the book they did it justice and they should have gotten more in, in my mind yeah and and it, it was very disappointing yeah. that that wasn't coming back because i i fell in love with it in the same way and yeah. there, there's inconsistencies in terms of like none of the people this age would talk about this stuff but whatever. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've taken beautiful 20-somethings and made them think things that I think. And I'm <laughs> well, okay with that. Maybe that means I'm a beautiful 20-something. Exactly. <laughs> I am jealous, though, because while I loved High Fidelity, Connor's going to talk about what I think is the TV show of the year. Well, it's sweeping the nation and sweeping the land and sweeping the globe. Ted Lasso, Apple TV+. Plus, So much so that someone sent me a tweet by noted cynic Rick Remender extolling the virtues of Ted Lasso. Yep. And it's goodness. And I was like, wow, if, if Rick Remender is bought in, then it, it can get anybody. We talked about this on our media explode. God, is it my show of the year? It, it might be. It might actually be my show of the year. I it's so, I mean, it, it. it is my show of the year for sure. I want to watch it again. I know Josh has watched it several times. I want to watch it again. 
who has the time? Jason Sudeikis playing Ted Lasso, a mid-level American football coach who gets hired to coach a English football team. The owner wants to tank the team in sort of like Major League, but ends up turning the owner and the team around to his way of thinking about the world and his inherent goodness. And you'd think if you were told this, you'd say, well, that sounds really hokey. But the jokes are genuinely funny. It's genuinely smart. It's genuinely full of heart. And at the end of it, you just want to be a better person after watching it, which is amazing. And, is, you know, it's the point of art is to, is to make you feel something different or new or see the world in a different way. And I watched it sort of, eh, I'll just check out one episode. It's only 20 minutes. Ended up, could not stop thinking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks until it finally ended. It, it, I still think about it now. It's so good. So good. It might be the best, the best show of the year. The worst thing about the show, and I don't mean this as a, as a dig as Joshua interpreted, but the worst thing about the show is that, that it's on Apple TV Plus and more people can't watch it easily. You can say that about almost all these shows. You know, you have to subscribe. Yeah, just today I was hanging out with my uh, with my brother in law, my sister in law, and me, my wife, and my and our cousin were just all talking about how great the show was. And like, oh, what is it on? I'm like Apple TV Plus. Like, oh yeah, no, we'll never watch it. The thing about Apple TV Plus though is that everybody who I've said you should watch this, I said there's a seven day trial. No, I did the same thing. I told them, and there's even a, even then they're like, oh, that's too that's too much work. There's a seven day trial, and after that, it's five bucks a month. It's the cheapest of all of those services. Right, but again, like they just did a report that there are four times as many inactive HBO Max accounts than active ones. That means people have them mm-hmm. and have never activated them. They're, they have them. They're for, I get it. They're for free. Crazy. I get it. The step is too far for people to take. But I, anyway, we're not no, talking about the, streaming services, but Ted Lasso right. is great. But great. I've gotten people to do it through that, too, at the same time. And the people who don't, well, maybe they deserve to miss out on a wonderful thing. Yeah, they're missing out. Watch it. It's really good. And I want to watch it again. Because this year has been the longest year ever in my life, mm-hmm. I'm not even exaggerating. Yep. I kind of forgot. I was like, well, it was really difficult to think of things that I had watched earlier in the year and remember if it was this year or not. I'm still not sure about all of these, so somebody might call me out. I started watching What We Do in Shadows which is on FX, so I was watching it on Hulu. I had seen a trailer for it a long time ago, and my my hook was that Matt Berry was in it, and I love Matt Berry. I think he's extremely funny. I've watched through Toast of London two or three times. And I had known that there was a movie. For some reason, I just never watched it. And I think, Connor, you'd be like, yeah, it's not that good. It was okay. I saw that it showed up on Hulu, and I was like, let's try it. And pretty much instantly, it's a very funny show. To the extent that, like, I'm not sure Matt Berry's the best thing on it. And he's a great thing on it. And it just, you know, it's got that Taika Waititi. Um, Taika. Yeah. You know, feeling, you know, like it's just a little odd, but very funny and, and also very accessible and very human. There are some cameos and guest stars and stuff, but it's not sort of overpowering. It's just kind of interesting. Oh, it really hooks me in. And and then right as I was finishing up the first season, a second season started. My wife sort of got into it, too, and we would watch it together. Genuinely funny and, and just amazing performances. And I don't, I don't know the guy who plays Nandor, but I think he's my favorite TV character in the longest time. I loved it. I can't wait for more. I don't know when that will happen. That's the weird thing about all these shows we're talking about. Is who knows when yeah. the next seasons yeah. will ever will come. They will come, but who knows when. That's a great segue to my next one, which ironically was another Apple TV Plus show, <laughs> which I was the last of the three of us to watch, and Josh was the first, so I'll give him credit there. Why but uh, mythical quest. I don't know. I was wondering that. It, mythic Quest: Raven's Banquet, from the mind of Charlie Day and Rob McElhaney, was a show that defied convention. And in the pitch, you know, it's a sitcom about the office environment at a at an MMO video game. 
you know, would not think that it would go to the emotional depths that the show went to and found myself completely by the fifth episode. I tell everyone, I'm like, just give it a shot, make it to the fifth episode. And and by the fifth episode, it, it is so mind blowingly good. And when you go through the whole season, you see the purpose of that fifth episode and how it plays in and how it affects the larger run of the season. What a joyful surprise that I need to thank Josh for pointing me out to. Cool. That was the first show I did watch on Apple TV because I had to double barrel Josh and our friend Mike Romo texting me constantly. Have you watched it yet? Have you watched it yet? Because Mike and I spent seven years working at a video game company. So a lot of that was very close to home. I can't imagine. Yeah. It's also really funny. Really funny. Always Sunny Philadelphia could be the funniest show of the last decade. Like in terms of like number of laughs that I have had. It's really funny. So this is from, you know, the same people. Very different show. Well, this was got a lot of heart. That show has no heart. Yeah, yeah it's true. But that's the point of that. Yeah, it's not, I'm not, it's not a criticism. That, yeah. show, that show has no heart. This show has a lot of heart, especially yeah. the almost universally acclaimed final episode they shot during the quarantine, which oh a lot God. of shows tried so to good. do. But this one pulled off probably the second best episode of the whole season in the quarantine episode, and full of all heart. I had avoided that, or not avoid. Like I heard about that before I started watching the show, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds hokey." And boy, did it deliver as many ways as possible. And also, if you've read Reemd, it feels sort of familiar. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Very. Yeah. Very of that. So very good. And and just I, th- I need to thank you, Josh, for that. And Connor, I need to thank you for the next show you're going to talk about because it's also one of my favorite of the year. Oh, Perry Mason, HBO, still makes the best shows for my money. Of all the places that make shows, they don't make as many, but they make good ones. Perry Mason was the miniseries, well, I guess you can't call it a miniseries, just a shortened season because they're doing a second season, who knows when. Loose adaptation of the famous TV and pulp novel character Perry Mason. This is his origin story. He starts off as a down and out PI in 1930s Los Angeles, a really fascinating time in the world and in Los Angeles in particular. And by the end of it becomes ever so closer to the Perry Mason we knew as played by Raymond Burr and for so many years in black and white television. Or that you never knew, and it doesn't matter. No, it's a, just a terrific show. The emotional depth of it was terrific. It's a dark show. It's a dour show. But yes. what pulls it out is that the cast is terrific. John Lithgow in a supporting role is great. You have all kinds of great scenery-chewing actors playing supporting roles. But really, it's all anchored around Matthew Reese as Perry Mason, who was on The Americans and won an Emmy in that show. and. It has the saddest eyes on TV. I watched this show, and because of it, I started watching The Americans because I have become obsessed with Matthew Reese in terms of like, I'm like, oh, he's the best actor. He's really good. He's really he's, good. He's, he's really amazing. Good. Especially if you see him in interviews, he's a goofball. Like, he's yeah, so no, far totally. from his characters he played on TV. When I would watch The Americans and Perry Mason, which I was watching concurrently at one point, like, he didn't look at different, and he didn't sound different, but he was a different person. Different bearing, like, different character. Different, he carries himself differently. That was a great show. I got, like, looking at the list and the things that we've just talked about, like, I was like, if we're going to get stuck at home, man, what a year. This was a great year for TV, for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we can complain about all the all the streaming services, but the sort of nuggets that you, you know, that you dig out of it have been pretty spectacular. Yeah, and the thing about Perry Mason was it's an interesting mystery, but also an interesting look at mega churches at the time and Los Angeles, Los Angeles and California politics and, the and how that, that was sort of corrupt and the depression and how that you know it's just there's a lot going on in the show, and you're in that interesting time where John Lithgow's character is in his like 60s or 70s in the 30s. That means that when he was young men, it was the old West in L.A. Like it was there's this great crossover. I love that show. I Every yeah. week I was so excited when it's new Perry Mason. 
again, almost all these shows are not binge shows. Yeah. Listen, I watched all That's the Crown point. in 10 hours, but, you know, Mandalorian, Picard. That's unusual stuff. for you. Yeah, it is unusual. High Fidelity, Ted Lasso, What We Do in the Shadows was on, Cable TV, Mythic Quest, Perry Mason, the show we're going to talk about next. Actually, almost all of these shows are shows that come out once a week. Yeah. Interesting. That helps because it sticks them in your mind more, yep. for one thing. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. The Good Lord Bird is on Showtime. I ended up getting Showtime because my wife and I got a little trial of it at some point, and we got halfway through one show and wanted to finish it. And right after that, uh, I started seeing trailers for The Good Lord Bird, and and it's um, basically uh, Ethan Hawke playing John Brown. This culminates in the, uh, I think it's 1852. It's around there, yeah. Uh, Harper's Ferry incident where he was taking over an armory. Uh, basically, he is probably the first well-known abolitionist and a fascinating human and character that isn't understood very well today. No. The show at the same time is not a boring or dry retelling of his story. It's very stylized and it at times almost feels satirical. It's irreverent. Yes, I think it's the word. Yep. You will watch John Brown or his portrayal of John Brown, I think that guy couldn't have been like that. And actually, from what I understand from historians, he was like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because he a hundred thousand percent believed that slavery was wrong, and he wasn't wrong. But at the time, that was very extreme, and he was willing to do violence because he felt that it was so evil that he would be judged by God. A extremely religious man. Well, he thought he was being sent by God to destroy slavery. Like, yeah, yeah. He was a crazy person who was doing the right thing. He was, but he was a crazy. Person. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it has been said, and this is not this is not fact, you know, like this kicks off a lot of, you know, what leads to the Civil War. I don't think that's true. I think it's part of it. It's not like the, he 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 died. He died a long time ago. Yeah. It's not like he died, suddenly Civil War kicked off. But I think it sowed the seeds for a lot of people's idea that they could yes. push back. They could they could fight this. This was an institution yeah. that was going to live forever. I just finished yeah, it today. It's, it's funny because I started watching it before you, and then life got in the way. And then I woke up this morning and I was like, "Shit, I got to watch two episodes of Good Lord Bird because I know Josh is going to talk about it." So I watched the last two, and it was incredible. I thought the ending was great. And I thought Ethan Hawke was incredible. I thought there was a really wonderful scene at the end when he's in prison, and he's giving a monologue oh, yeah. about his place in history and, and slavery in, in America. And for a second, it flashes a black and white frame, and I couldn't tell if it was Ethan Hawke or an actual picture of John Brown, and I went back, I think it was Ethan Hawke, but it just was a really poignant moment about where he's going to live, and it's not about him, but where his struggle is going to live in the history of the United States, which is not a prominent place. It's sort of in the background for a lot of people. I remember learning about it, like, but it's one of those things like where they'd, you'd say John Brown, and, and you'd say Harper's Ferry in the same way that you'd say like the who was the dude who did the cotton picking machine, you know, or, or, you know, George Washington Carver and the peanut or, you know, it sort of felt like that factoid and, you know, like their books and it's worth reading about them. But the show is, it was very good. Yeah, it was really good. And there's nothing like it. Playing Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Again, that was an interesting, he wasn't sainted. That wasn't the way that he was played, but he was important. And I, I was thinking about it. I was, I don't know. How often I've seen Frederick Douglass portrayed in any of these things? He's been a background. You usually see him like, things, but... oh, look, it's Frederick Douglass, and he walks yeah. past the main character. He's got that oh, hair. You're yeah. like, hey, there's the glory. He's a human. In that party scene in Glory, look, oh, Frederick Douglass is here, and he just yeah. walks past it. Like, that's exactly. all you ever see him. Yeah. I thought it was terrific. I thought it was one of the best cable. It was like Perry Mason and Good Lord Bird, like two of the best, you know, regular TV mm-hmm. shows I watched this year. Yep. 
Yeah, sure. and and I've the thing is, I still we're going to talk about another one, but I still have Showtime because the the shows that are on there are fantastic. They have great shows, really great shows. Really, really. They don't have it. they don't have the PR team that HBO does, but they have really great shows. Yeah, hundred percent. Devs was a show that I saw promoted, and I was like, "Huh, I probably should I should probably take a look at that, right?" And then as I got closer to it, realized, "Oh, it's Alice Garland, who you might remember from Ex Machina, the movie that features Oscar Isaac dancing, mm-hmm. um, as well as Annihilation, which I still haven't seen yet, but I, I still need to see a, a, a Annihilation. But I loved Ex Machina, um, and have been keeping track of Alex Garland on what he's doing. And I was like, "Oh, that's weird that he's doing a show on FX. Like, why isn't he doing a movie and that sort of thing?" And so, but essentially, you know, there was a lot of I feel like earlier this year there was a lot of ai themed shows at least stuff that i was at least watching that dealt with ai and like things becoming you know kind of kind of super quantum computing kind of topic type thing but devs was just this really intriguing almost i hate to say it but almost like a like an eight hour movie right this like kind of this story that that unfolds um behind the secretive tech company in the bay area and a murder that happens and the girlfriend of the guy who was murdered and uh kind of uncovering the truth and it just was gripping and you know again it goes back like i feel like Boardwalk Empire back in the day was the first one where I really kind of coined this when we talked about it here on this on the urine show was that is you know, the equivalent of like escaping for an hour to watch a little mini movie. Mm-hmm. And that's what devs did. It like teleported you to this story into this place and it, it's filmed in San Francisco, filmed in the Bay Area, all kind of accurate, you know, great performance by uh, what's his name from Parks and Rec, Ron Swanson. Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman. Nick Offerman, right, exactly. Nick Offerman. Allison Pill is in it and she was great. Like there was, you know, like really, really strong cast and it's just like if you're into sci-fi, if you're into, you know, kind of, I want to say present day science fiction, then it's definitely a must watch. And it just like you'll get lost in it. The design aspect of the show is just like through the roof. So uh, if you're a design nerd, you'll enjoy it on that level. But uh, yeah, couldn't recommend it even anymore. Devs was great. So if you watch it, it it was on FX. So you can catch it on Hulu now. Yeah. But yeah, but if if you're a fan of anything that Alex Garland has done in, in film, you absolutely want to watch this. So this year we saw, we're going to talk about it in a second, the sort of the greatest of all time Jeopardy players play each other. And throughout the year, they've been showing old episodes of great players playing. And what I like to do, what people like to do, I think in general, is watch great players play their game. I'm a big Survivor fan. I've watched every season of Survivor since it came on here 20 years ago. I didn't know that, but I'm also not surprised. I'm not surprised either. And this year, I knew this also. This year they did a season where everyone who played had won the game. They've done all-star teams a lot. and it's Some always fun. of them were pretty old then. Yeah, for sure. And they've done all-star games, and it's always fun to watch old players play because you don't have to ramp up. Everyone just hits the ground running. But here, not only did everybody hit the ground running, but everybody hits the ground running at an elite level. So this season of Survivor was incredibly fun because all you had was a super high play. It's like watching an all-star game where the players actually care about the game. It's just they it's were like all Connor, really like, good. It's like that first time Big Brother did this where they right. did Big Brother All-Stars and, and it was when Dr. Will came back and it was yeah. like, okay, cool. This is on another level. Yeah. And also because usually when they do an, all, an all-star game in Survivor, the one or two winners on the show immediately get kicked out because they know if these guys are good, get them out. Here, everyone has won. So they couldn't just pick on the winner. They did pick on the only two-time winner pretty quickly, but everyone was really good. That meant the game had to change. The normal rhythms were out the window. You didn't know what was going to happen week to week. Anyone could have won the game. I really love Survivor. I think it's a great, interesting psychological study of humanity and how people interact in groups and the whole Lord of the Flies scenario. But to do it with everyone was very, very good at it. 
it's like watching the Olympics. It's like watching the World Cup. It's like watching, like I said, like an all-star game where the players actually care. Like, you know, the NBA, they don't really care. They, they score 200 points over this defense, you know, that kind of thing. This is like everyone's super into it. And it was gripping all the way to the very end. I, I loved the season of Survivor. Also over on Showtime, there's <laughs> someone there. There's a documentary series. <laughs> a new episode came out while we were like... I was like, I don't really want to do the show. I want to watch the Reagans. It's a, a documentary series about the Reagans. And, you know, if you're our age, that's your first president that you remember. Yep. You know, we were born during the Carter administration. And I realized very early on, I was like, I don't actually know a lot about Reagan. I know that people have strong opinions on him. I know that conservatives consider him to be... St. Ronnie. Yeah, like like the best thing that ever happened. And I know that that liberals kind of talk about him like he was a problem, but I don't, I don't feel like people really know why or how unless you were sort of around. And also understand Nancy Reagan's role in all of this. Puppet master. I knew he was an actor, you know, um, and it's not that simple, though, quite honestly. Like, it's it's a lot of that. But anyway, like, I knew he was an actor, but I, I didn't quite understand what kind of actor and what he, you know, was. And he, he wasn't, like, a big actor. No, he, he was, was like a, a mid-level actor. Guy. Yeah. And then later on, he really just became, like, a pitch man, like, for, for yeah. selling products. Yep. And to me, now, listen, this comes at it from a fairly liberal slant, if you are of the mind that he was pretty destructive. And I, I think some of that is largely unarguable. But there is some amazing footage in here. There's one where he goes and does like a rally in the South Bronx, like in the early 80s when it was looked like a war zone. I'm not even exaggerating. Yeah. Like it looked like a war zone. And he gets in a shouting match with somebody. He's like, no, no, you listen to me with like people who are angry that they live in a burned out, you know, wasteland. It was crazy footage. And then the other thing that I've noticed is that the, the filmmakers are subtly and not so subtly alluding a lot to a lot that we are seeing uh, in today or we've seen during the Trump administration. Like I didn't well, know that make America great again. Yeah. That was Reagan's. I was just going to say that was all Reagan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it, there was that, there was a lot of things and it. It's a parallel to a, I am going to say it great white hope kind of president. That's largely fallacy, but people want to believe in it so much that, you know, it becomes a legend in that way. It, it, and again, like if you're our age, and you kind of lived through it, but were too young to really get what was going on. It's pretty fascinating and enlightening. Also, it's really well-made documentary. His son is in a lot of it to sort of give context from a personal side. And then there's like his speech writer. They have James Baker on. It's, there's definitely people from all ends talking about their experiences there and what was happening. There's a crazy interview with Mike Wallace where they're both sitting on the edge of a dock. And it's like after Carter was elected and he didn't run that year. And they actually also said in 68, he didn't get the nomination. And they said, well, he'll never get to run again because he's too old now. And he was like 65. I was like, things have changed. Yeah. It's, it's great. It's, it's really I have them watching. all recorded on my DVR. I just haven't watched it yet. Mm-hmm. I need to check that out. I think depending where you live, like living in New York during the AIDS crisis, you definitely knew what yeah, the problem was. I knew Reagan about was. that very specifically. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of problems in those eight years. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I don't want to round this out on a down note, but I will say like that in the second year of having children and, and adjusting to that life, as we've heard Josh talk about it for the last 10 or so, um, it definitely is an adjustment that leads to a lot of less TV watching and less media consumption of your own. If you listen to the media explodes, you've heard me talk about the hours of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that I've watched. Um, let me tell you about the show called Elmo's World. <laughs> For some reason, somehow through the madness of kids stuff or whatever, my wife and I were able to, uh, much thanks to YouTube TV and its DVR recording capability, were able to carve out at least 
you know, 20 or so minutes a day to enjoy an old favorite of Jeopardy. And part of it was buoyed. Which, Connor, was it this year or last year was James Hall's hour? Was that last year? I think it was last year. The tournament was this year. The, the tournament was this year, yeah. yeah. So so last year, in the, first, in, in the first year of our kid's life, you know, was, was watching the, you know, James Hulsauer be become a Jeopardy uh, champion. And then this year, was, they had the, G, the GDAT tournament, not GDAT, the, the GOAT tournament. Yeah. Um, it's it's not, the, not the first time I made that mistake, by the way. They had the GOAT tournament with Ken Jennings and James Hulsauer and the other guy. But no matter no, no matter what else was going on, <laughs> we got caught up in the, the magic of the legacy of, you know all these years of Jeopardy. You mean uh, Brad? That yeah, Brad. Brad's the other guy. Yeah, Brad Rutter. Listen, he was a non-factor in the tournament, but he is an all-time great. He's actually the highest money maker. Did you watch? So what I mentioned earlier was during the pandemic when they weren't doing the episodes, they showed like all-time great episodes. They showed the million-dollar tournament. Did you watch that? Exactly what I was going to talk about. Brad's really impressive in that tournament. He's the highest money maker in all in all time, even more than Ken Jennings. Or Hour. Yeah, no, so during the pandemic, as Connor mentioned, they showed, like, old episodes from great moments in Jeopardy's history. They showed the first episode. They showed the, yeah. the first kind of superstar champion. Like, it was a great kind of stroll down Jeopardy's cop. history. Yeah, the cop was great. Uh, he, yeah, with the handlebar mustache. Uh, just some some great stuff. So I really got a feel and really kind of felt closer to the, the legacy of this great American institution game show, um, only to be, you know, kind of shot down when, when the news of Alex Trebek passing away, which we knew Celebrate was— Celebrate him which we knew was inevitable, we knew was coming. They've been showing the last few that he shot, which I think is going to end on Christmas Day, but you can see it. Oh, you could you we I could see it. I could see it when they still came back this season. I could yeah. see it last year. He's, like, you he's, tell he was struggling. He yeah. but even more, I would say the most recent ones they've been watching as opposed to ones from like January, February, like he's taken a turn, which is sad to watch, but he's still got it. It's funny, though, because when they started this new season in September, we were there to to watch it to see what it would do. And they had the socially distant contestant spots and all this stuff. Yeah. But like the opening credits, um, they change every year. When we didn't have new Jeopardies to watch uh, during the pandemic, we went back to Netflix and to Hulu to watch some of the other archived ones. I watched so many teen tournaments and college tournaments and things like that. But every year they change. the smarter the, when you watch those. They change the opening credits with every every season. And this season, the opening credits were less about the categories and more about like showing great moments in Jeopardy's history and I was like oh they're just this is the this is the start of the last lap you know sadly Trebek passed away sooner than I would have hoped but his legacy will endure the show will continue and I'll keep on watching it because it's it's just a great uh, it's a it's a great game show that is focused on folks like us with just ridiculous amounts of dumb pop culture (laughs) and like esoteric weird category history you know knowledge and stuff like that and so uh, it's always a blast I like being stumped I like getting Final Jeopardy you feel so you know accomplished when you are able to get it right sometimes it's super easy sometimes it's super easy the question that brad won the tournament on was incredibly easy yeah yeah but we watch it every day it's great yeah i I always lose it on shakespeare i just i don't know it that well (laughs) well that's you got to brush up on that then I always I always lose it on like whenever it gets into like european history or whatever it is that stuff i just don't know the bible just say king boduan yeah We want to take just a second to mention some of the ways that you can support the show and also to really thank the people who do those things. Most notably, there's patreon.com slash ifanboy. That is the place where people have come to say, I like what you guys are doing a lot and how can I help and support? And boy, the people who do, we say this all year, but this is our year-end show and giving and Christmas and all that stuff. Like, We're so touched by it. I mean, it really is like a big deal. It does keep this stuff going. And I know that over the last year, it's a weird, crappy year, and the fact that people have stuck with us and saying that this is an important thing to do, that means a lot to us, and so we will keep doing that. The way it works is 
you say, I want to give at this level uh, on a regular basis. We've gotten a lot of stretch goals because of that. So we're doing one of the reasons that you've heard about some of these things that we're talking about today is because we've been doing the media splodes and we have the talk splodes. We have a great talk splode coming up, by the way. You know, book splodes, all that happened. And then the video shows are going back up because of it. And you're, you know, you're getting a chance to watch all those. We have more stretch goals. The next one is some sort of G.I. Joe corner that we have not uh, defined any further past that. And then if, if, I mean, if we beat that, God forbid, we get to the quarterly barbecue show, no, which I don't even uh, want to think about. Hang on. Not what God if forbid. we did a weekly not God barbecue forbid. show? A weekly bi-coastal barbecue <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, what I if mean, we did that? Yeah, as long as I don't have to travel, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> travel. What's that word mean anymore? Uh, so, again, that's patreon.com slash ifanboy. If you donate at any level, you get to vote on the, the patron pick. And uh, it's a lot like voting in the country. A lot of people have the ability. Not a lot of people do it. I think you should get into it. Put a little spice in there for us. And then if you're a $5 or higher level, you will get a patron superpower, which often has effort put into them and yeah. sometimes doesn't, but that turns out okay too. You never know. It's... Get over to ifanboy.threadless.com and you can find t-shirts, sweatshirts, phone cases, shower curtains, all sorts of stuff with one of our eight designs that you know and love, uh, including the really, I think the words of our time, nothing makes sense, nothing matters. And of course, stay home and read comics. The, be- uh, the, the 2020 bestseller, stay home and read yeah, comics. Yeah, and a portion of all those sales will uh, continue to go to Comic Book United Fund. We have another check going out to them very soon. I mean, we say there are new designs, designs in the world. We don't want to force it. That's possible. We don't want to force it. We, we only go with the design naturally. when we really like it. We have some that we've talked about for the last year, but we really yeah. don't want to force in a design out there. So when we, when we all like it, we'll go with it. The problem is over the last year, a lot of fretting. So maybe, <laughs> and we've really and we really kind of summed it up with the nothing makes sense, nothing yeah, matters. Yeah, it's hard to beat that. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So get over to ifanboy.threadless.com for that. You can go to ifanboy.com/support if you don't want to deal with any of that, and you think, hey, can you got a you got a PayPal link? Let me let me throw something in the tip jar there. Let's do that. And again, it should not go without being said. End of the year, you got to get rid of some money. You got to dump some cash. Yeah. Listen, we're not a legitimate 501c. We're not tax deductible. There's no benefit to you other than you need to get it off your books. And yeah. if you need to get it off your books, why not here? That's all we're saying. Yeah. And like we've also said, though, maybe not PayPal for that. Maybe, sure. maybe contact us directly because we can, I can give you a mailing address. Just, if you, just if you're avoid. someone who needs to get several million to, say, $10 million off your books, what funnier way would be than give it to a podcast? <laughs> Do it for the joke. It's hilarious. <laughs> That would be really, pretty funny. That really anything funny. over four figures, I think. Actually, it would be no. great. It would be anything. really funny. Do it. It's, it's a good point. Eventually, this is going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I got my fingers crossed. Finally, you can get to ifanboy.com slash Amazon, where you will find a general link to Amazon. You can also find links to buy all the books on Booksplode, and you'll find a link for the pick of the week every week in that show. And again, thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for, for taking place. And if you haven't, thank you for sitting through these. And also... What's wrong? Is it, is it something we did? What is it? Love us. So this is the games part of the show. And you would think in a pandemic, you know, more games are being played. I see, you know, people, you know, doing game nights on Zoom. And I didn't play any games. Not a board game. Not a, not a, I just sort of sat and drank in the dark. <laughs> no games, though. But Josh played games. I was only thinking about this in terms of video games. And then there's other games that I played like that. Anyway, I got obsessed with Forza Horizon 4 for a while. Like, a lot. I have, like, 400 cars, and I was doing it all the time at night for an hour or so. I really like cars. That's a thing. I'd played Forza, the racy one, and that was way too 
simulation and, and kind of it's hard to get into. But Forza Horizon, as anybody who plays games know, has a little bit of a story to it, a little thing that's sort of going on the middle in, in, a, in a framing device that I really liked. And it was a little more arcadey while still looking cool and getting to drive lots of cars. And uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. I did not consider that wasted time. But then I stopped because I bought Assassin's Creed Valhalla because I've played all the Assassin's Creed games for quite a while. I think since the French Revolution one. I played the Revolutionary War one a long time ago, but I didn't understand it. So this is the Viking one. Mm-hmm. The world is gigantic, and like all the other ones, it takes a little while to get into it. I do not like the fighting mechanics as much this time around. And also, you can't get weapons all the time, which is weird. Like you can't, like you just have to wait a really long time to sort of get different weapons, which was kind of fun before. We just had a thousand different things to use. But I really like Vikings, and it's kind of fun to sort of you're, you're actually like sailing around England and just destroying Saxons. How many cars do you have in that one? I have no cars. I have a long ship. How many long ships? I have just the one, but I can blow my horn at any time in near water, and they just show up and take me to where I want, and then we can go raid. Is it like when you used to call your, your what was it, the Griffin in War- Warcraft? Yeah, Griffin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sort of right. like that. You know so what? Just the, just the other day, I was thinking about how I miss Stranglethorn Vale. <laughs> Why would you do that? I just randomly, I was like, oh, that, I remember I remember discovering new lands in World of Warcraft was like an exciting moment, and I kind of missed that moment mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. So this year, Ron, no books for you, huh? No reading time? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best Josh impression, where I have a stack of books that I intended to read. I went back to see what books I read this year when we were prepping for the show, and I realized the last book I read was the uh, in preparation for last year's show. And then I realized that a year has gone by, and I thought, my God, what have I done as the days go by? Was it because you don't have a commute? Is that why? No, no, no. No, it was a bundle of things. It was because of fucking a year of... Going to bed at normal time and waking up anytime between three thirty and five thirty on a regular basis, combined with work, combined with everything else, combined with being in a one bedroom apartment in a new bed situation without a easy accessible light, and I didn't want to interrupt my partner's sleep, and so yeah, it just it, it just it, 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 I'm looking forward to a new 2021 where I'm able to read more. All right, well, let's kick off the book segment. I want to talk about "Say Nothing: A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland" by Patrick Raiden Keefe. And this is probably the best book I read this year. It's stuck with me. I think about it a lot. What it is, is it's a way of examining the troubles in Northern Ireland through the lens of the people who were disappeared. And the people who were disappeared were people who often crossed the IRA and then one day they just disappeared or people in masks came and took them away. And there's one case in particular that's sort of the spine of this that turns out the person who disappeared didn't do the thing that they were accused of doing. And it's a mechanism to really go into depth on the Troubles and the IRA and the Provisional Army of the British government and how that all intertwined and the people who were working both sides and the spies and how just incompetent everybody was and how it led to all this needless tragedy and murder and death and pain. And it, it was it's an incredibly moving and compelling book. I couldn't put it down. I think I read it in like a week, week and a half. And it's not a small book. It just I couldn't stop reading it. I have it here. You bought it for me, and, and I didn't really know what it was. But I'll read that next after I finish the one I'm reading. Yeah, if you have any history in Ireland, any family history, have you ever been there? I, I went to Northern Ireland. and went to Belfast a couple of years ago. And as someone who grew up in New York of an Irish lineage, you know, New York local news would cover the Troubles every night. and So it felt very uh, vibrant to me as a kid. And going to see it in person and then reading this book is all very, very emotionally impactful. It was a very, very good book. It was in a lot of the big lists last year in terms of best nonfiction books. By the way, most of these books are nonfiction books on our list this year. 
Yeah, that seems to be a thing. I'll get this out of the way. It's hard to find time to actually sit there and read. So uh, I really, I did talk about this last year. I listen to a lot of audiobooks because I can do that while I'm doing the other things that I have to do. So the one that I listened to recently, and I, it was like, I want to say it was like a 35-hour book. So that's a pretty big one. Uh, and I listened to it sort of nonstop while I was repainting and redoing uh, a room in my house, was The Five Families, The Rise and Decline and Resurgence of America's Most Powerful Mafia Empires by Selwyn Rabb. And it's basically a historical, you know, beginning to end and very detailed history of the American mafia. The what? Uh, Cosa Nostra. What? Our thing. Yeah. It turns Josh, out. That, so was all the pages blank? Yeah. It turns out, it turns out that this actually happened. No, it didn't. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, like, you go back to the beginnings of the stuff. It, actually, if you watch Boardwalk Empire, a lot of this is sort of, that's the beginning of the mafia, as it's understood, where, you know, there were different crews that became very rich during Prohibition. And then Lucky Luciano sort of starts the families aspect. And the five families in New York are the most powerful ones. And it goes through the history of each of those families. And, boy, it... I mean, I know a lot about this, but, you know, it's one of those things where you know a lot of names and words and times, and this gives you context for it. I did, by the end, I had a really hard time. It's five families, and they changed their names throughout, and, and you know, it's a 70, 80-year history, and, and there's all these sort of apocryphal stories. It's like reading a Russian novel. It really is, and, you know, you see how it changes, and, you know, like, I've heard John Gotti's name, but I was like, oh, now I understand Hmm. sort of how it is like that, and it, you know... Do you wish you'd read it before we went to Sparks to have dinner? Yes, but I also wish that I'd read it before we did Goodfellas Minute, because I think that that was pretty fast. That would have been helpful. Yeah, because, I mean, the Lucchese family is very interesting for a lot of ways, and it's funny, because I've been watching... I've been trying to watch all the movies because I watch Casino and I was like, I gotta get Donnie Brasco because Donnie Brasco... It's a great movie. It is a great movie and it's a great performance, but it's a really big deal also in terms of law enforcement. Um, You know, and and there's all these characters. There's a bit where like Frank Perdue, the chicken guy, is like, yeah, I had dealings with Paul Castellano. I had problems with my supply line. And I was like, you're just talking about this? (laughs) Like, it was like little things like that that were just crazy and like, you know how Jerry Orbach was really good friends with Crazy Joe Gallo, and he was supposed to be at Umberto's clam house that night, but decided to go home. Or how John Gotti's trial, like he got who was it? It was Mickey Rourke and Anthony Quinn. I want to mm-hmm. say, yeah, probably to sit like in the bleachers for him and or whatever that. Yeah, know, I don't Gallo. think people realize how intertwined entertainment, yeah. especially New York entertainment, is with the mob. Like it's not surprising at all that Jerry Orbach was friends with Crazy Joe Gallo. Yeah, they were in, in every aspect of life. And how some of those guys, you know, were really public and well known, and what, it, and how nothing—it's how little law enforcement dealt with it, which largely had to do with J. Edgar Hoover just not dealing with it and saying it wasn't a thing. I didn't want to do it, uh, and how they figured it out, and how Rico came about. Blah 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 blah. It's a huge book, but boy, is it fascinating! And it, it really brought home like how much it is involved in our daily lives, especially if you were a New Yorker. Yep. And in other places. And, you know, it really is a huge part of the American story. If for nothing else, then, like, there is heroin in America because of this. Mm-hmm. Full stop. It may have come along later, but it starts with this. There's a meeting in Sicily with Luciano that brought it to America in a way that, you know, we've been stuck with ever since. Speaking of heroin. Yeah. Blitz. Perfect. Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. Is a book that I got Josh last year, I think, and we both read it this year. We mentioned it briefly on some show we did this year. I don't remember which one it was. 
I initially didn't have this book on my list, but then I thought about it. I don't know if there's a single book that I read this year that's more impactful on the way I think about things than Blitz is. Because yeah. it, it sort of reframes the entire World War II conflict. In several ways. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I, and I can't watch anything about or read anything about World War II now and not think about how this aspect of what's covered in the book affected it. Basically, what it comes down to is this book was written by a German uh, journalist who has done something that no one else has ever done when you consider the vast forests of trees that have been cut down to, for books about World War II and the vast amounts of celluloid that were, have been shot covering documentaries and moves of World War II. No one's ever really dug into the drug companies in Germany, which is where all, almost all the big drug companies were at the time. I'm going to give you a factoid at the beginning that was enough to hook me. Yep, go ahead. So like, oh my goodness. At Bayer, the same person invented heroin and aspirin within 11 days of each other. Right. That's crazy. He dug into all these archives that are not lost, but they're you know they're hard to find. And he went to the towns where the factories were, and he, he went to the ruins of the factories and found their paperwork. And it turns out the whole fucking German army was on drugs. Pervitin. It explains the erratic nature of their strategy. It explains the Blitzkrieg. It explains Hitler's descent into madness. He starts off as like a hardcore, basically like a hardcore kid. He doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't do drugs. He doesn't do anything. And then by the end of it, he's just just strung out junkie, making horrible decisions. And it just basically almost explains everything that goes on in the, in the war and why the Nazis rose to success so quickly because they were all on speed and heroin and... And then by the end of it, they're all strung out and, and it just collapses. You almost can't now read or watch anything about the war and not see that in it. And it's just so interesting. I would assume that among World War II historians, like, this explains so much about Hitler. Yeah. It's all clear now after reading this book. Yeah. Some of it is speculation, but it's backed up by a lot. His doctor's notes yeah. are pretty incontrovertible. <laughs> There's a lot of just digging through records here and, you know, just the stuff that they, the, 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 the worse and worse, you know, like any drug addict, mm -hmm. they had to take more and more and, and stronger and stranger combinations just because to get the high that they had lost. And almost all the leadership of the Nazi party was on drugs. And the effect of stimulants and heroin and cocaine on, which is a stimulant, on the German army and their leadership in the Third Reich was uh, uncalculable. I don't think anybody's really fully understood how much that affected the war until now. Eric Larson is my favorite history writer, and he released a book just around the time of my birthday, which is, again, I mentioned this at the end of February, so savvy listeners will realize that the first book I started listening to in the pandemic was The Splendid and the Vile, the saga of a Churchill family in defiance during the Blitz. This is about the Blitz, very specifically. Starts at the beginning of the Blitz, ends at the end of the Blitz. <laughs> he does that. Yeah, he does, and I, I really like that. Yeah. You know, largely... It serves as a sort of a biography of Churchill, of which, again, there is no shortage. But it talks about him and the British people during sort of this unheralded time in modern warfare where a major city, you know, and if we're going to say, you know, like a, like a major Western city is sort of is under attack directly, you know, from, you know, weapons that they had never seen before. And, and just sort of the way that people went about their lives in the midst of all this and sort of the amount of people who died it was staggering. And then in the daytime, they would open up and go to shops and go to work. And then at night, they would hunker down and just hope that Bond doesn't hit my house. Yep. You know, to read that at the beginning of our lockdown in the pandemic, <laughs> it's difficult not to make parallels and contrast and sort of look at those things. End of the day, 
fascinating look at and again like this is another guy who researches the hell out of what he writes about everything is backed up if somebody says something in one of his books there's a record of them saying that which is so impressive he's such a good historian yeah he is you know there's just so much there and again totally fascinating a thing that i know about but didn't know as much about it really lets you get in it you can't go wrong with any of his books at all fantastic the Big Goodbye, Chinatown, The Last Years of Hollywood by Sam Wasson was much heralded uh, when it came out as the latest great Hollywood nonfiction book. And this one is focused on the story of the making of Chinatown while also paralleling it with, as it says in the subtitle, The Last Years of Hollywood, which is meant to be basically when things changed. And uh, people often point to Jaws or Star Wars as the, the when things changed. But actually, he makes a great case for it. It's actually The Exorcist that changed everything and changed the way that studios looked at films and the, the owners looked at studios and what they made. You know, It was a nice little side business for a while. And then The Exorcist comes out and makes this huge amount of money off a tiny budget. And suddenly all the New York guys are like, ooh, wait a minute. And then Jaws and then Star Wars and then it's all over. <laughs> It's a really interesting story. You know, Chinatown is a great film. It's got people who made it who are awful people, but the story of it is really interesting. The time in Hollywood is really interesting. You know, Jack Nicholson, this is his first starring role. He was a really great side actor before this. This is his first leading role and maybe his greatest role. And you've got Robert Evans you know, as the head of Paramount there. And so there's all kinds of interesting things happening through the lens of this film. And Robert Town, and maybe Robert Town didn't actually write this movie as much as we think he did. And there's a lot of really interesting stories that came out of this, and it, it was really well done if you find those kind of stories exciting. That sounds great. It's a great book, and it's... It's in the Biscuit it's, it's similar to that, yeah, absolutely. But it's, you know, I love Chinatown. I watch it all the time, and it, the making parts of it is actually really fun. It, it starts off with a history of the, the main people, you know, the main people behind the movie, and then you get into the movie itself, and then afterwards what happens, how Hollywood changes. It's all very interesting and good, and it's just, it was a really great read. I flew through that one, too. Does it include the part where the fading actor killed those guys when they were in Roman Polanski's driveway? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. That's good. Yes. Ron, you still with us? Yes, I am. <laughs> Barely, but I am. In sort of the uh, realm of the sort of quick read that I was excited and went through very quickly, which I read in actual prose format, Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion, compiled by Jim Ruland. This is a front-to-back oral history of the band Bad Religion, who is you know, one of my favorite bands of all time. I was super excited to get it, I, and I pre-ordered a copy of it with a friend of mine, who owns a bookstore, Josh Christie, and he sent me the one that's signed by the whole band. So I have a really cool copy of it like that. Because it's a lot of first person, there's a lot of really great stories and interviews. And the, like the guys are interesting and funny guys. And this is a punk band who have been around since the late 70s when they were teenagers. And now they still are in this band and they've got to be near their 60s, if not quite. You know, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. It's it's one thing like, you know, some Sometimes I, I get really into an artist and I know a lot about them. And sometimes I just buy the albums and listen to it. I don't really know anything about them. And this was the latter case. It was a lot of fun. I tore through it in no time at all. Not a great book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it was the author, the stuff where the band is talking, you know, that's, that's great. They're telling stories. The author's a little too much of a fan. Mm. I'm all about, you know, giving them their due and, you know, how important they were to a lot of uh, music that came out and what a big deal Suffer was when that came out in 88. I had no idea that Greg Hurwitz was... Is Greg? That's not the right word. Gerwitz. Brett Gerwitz. I got all screwed up. Was like such a horrible drug addict. Twice. I mean, like the stories of how debauched he got, talking about heroin again, and how he sort of came back from it 
and how they sort of split and came back. All is really fascinating. There's sort of scary stories about the punk scene from the 80s. And then, you know, at the same time, you've got this weird relationship between them all. And Greg Graffin is a, a doctor of, uh, what is it, like a paleontological biology. It's nuts. But the guy is is way too into them. And he needs to be a little more distant. And that really comes through more at the end than anywhere else. And then the other real problem is that Greg Hetson is a guy who, not too long ago, in the last five years or so, you know, after 30-something years of the band, they fired him. And that's the thing I was waiting for because I don't know much about it at all. And they really didn't go into it, and Hetson didn't talk. And so that's a big problem with sort of the story that didn't get to be part of it. But besides that, if you like the band or you like that scene or anything, it's totally worth reading. What's the opposite of a quick read? Uh, Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. <laughs> you, you sent me with Washington by Ron Chernow, and I still haven't finished it, and that was like 15 years ago. So this year with the pandemic, home a lot. I wasn't working the first couple of months of the year. I was reading a lot, and I was on pace to like double my best year ever in terms of number of books read. And then I started reading Alexander Hamilton after watching the movie of the play that we talked about earlier. And it was great. I loved reading it. It just took me like three months. And so I was I was like doing like a book a week up until that point. And then just I just hit this Alexander Hamilton black hole and my numbers went way down. I really enjoyed reading it. I learned a lot. I especially loved the parts in the, in the beginning when he was in the war. It, it, it slows way down after the war. And, but one thing it really made clear to me, and I've always you know had this notion, is that you know, reading Alexander Hamilton while in the midst of this election season and the, the country sort of tearing itself apart is that that is baked into America. It's always been there. It's been there from the very beginning, from the very first cabinet meeting of, in Washington's cabinet. They're already at each other's throats and plotting how to destroy each other. And the factions break off and political parties are formed. Uh, even if they're not called what they were then, they're the same parties that are, exist now. There's the rural farmer party and then there's the more liberal city party and Almost immediately from the very forming of this country, they've been at each other's throats and trying to destroy each other and, and slandering each other in the press and making up lies. It just, it, I was reading this while, while the election was going on, going, oh, well, this is all, it's always been this way. So I, I found a lot of comfort in reading the book. I felt a lot less dread about the future of the nation, realizing we've been doing it since 1780. Great book, obviously led to a great play and a great film. And if you were at all curious after watching it or listening to the soundtrack, it's worth reading. It's just going to take you a long time because it's real dense. Chernow's a dense writer. Yeah, it's not as enjoyable as it is interesting. I really enjoyed the parts when he's young and he's in the war and he's you know making his way. Those parts I literally couldn't put down. I was like reading right. in bed and moved to the couch and then moved around the apartment. Honestly, that's how the Washington book went too, is the first part is fascinating, the war part is fascinating, and then after that, it's just all constitutional shit and grinds to a, it's yeah, difficult. Yeah, a lot of parliamentary procedure and stuff, which is all really interesting, but it's just like, oh, how, how? I'm not making any progress. I really was happy I read it. I really liked reading it. It was a really great book, but it was long. So if you listen to Goodfellas Minute, you would know that the three of us are very interested in Robert Moses of New York. And this year, I, I downloaded The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York by Robert A. Caro. Uh, this came out, I want to say, 1972. It's a legendary Yeah, it won the Pulitzer book. Prize in it. But there's like a thing where it's like on everybody's shelf. There was some, but some like, yeah. like every politician guy has it on their yeah. bookshelf in the back. It's like a legendary political book. And I do not have time to explain <laughs> like, no, you why don't. This is what it is. I want to say if you read the book off the shelf, I want to, I think it's 11 or 1200 pages, something yeah, like it's, that. It's gigantic because it covers a man whose career, you know, stretched from the teens 
he didn't really get in the power until the 20s through this sort of early 70s when it sort of started to go away. And again, it's just like the mafia thing. It's funny is that because at the time this was written, they didn't really actually know much about the mafia. They didn't talk about them. But I can't imagine that that didn't you know, cross paths in some way since this guy's known as the builder. There's no way to explain the impact that this single human man has had on the lives of everybody in this country. Everybody, whether you're a New Yorker or not. If you're a New Yorker, more so. If not, the number of projects and things that he was involved with directly, you know, in building. And, and what a it's like how to take all this talent and really let hubris and ego corrupt it entirely. Not corrupt in terms of like he was like stealing money or anything like that. In fact, far from it. But just to f- fulfill his need to be in charge and to have power, which is why it's called the power broker. It feels like every American should read it. Kind of in a way, you know, if you want to be informed about how things have worked, you know, work. And also this, you know, behind the scenes stuff with all the presidents and governors who became presidents that that he had dealings with, like him and Franklin Roosevelt hated each other. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, it's fascinating. It was so good. And Caro is is a hell of a writer, too. It really compelling and, and really well written very clearly written when you see something like as a, a 1200 page biography you think well that, that's got to be terrible to read not he deserved that Pulitzer Prize and then some really great Ron what's your favorite parkway Norton State come Josh, on wow did he have anything to do with Norton State Parkway uh, the whole that, thing he, he yeah. created it the southern state <laughs> first and then the northern state the whole definition of the term parkway was coined by him because they wanted to make these rapid transit from the city out to Long Island, but they were all land that you couldn't develop on. And so what he did was he, he made very long, thin parks with roads on them and that every three or four exits you had picnic tables. And they were essentially – it was a big scam because it was they were, they were meant to be parks, but they were just expressways. Sort of, you know? but he also put in beautiful, huge parks. Yeah. It's just that he didn't want anybody other than white people going to them. That's the one sad asterisk about it's, that. There's more than that. There's just yeah. more than just that. Oh, man. There's so much history in there. You can't even – like Long it's Island history on its own. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of fiction books. The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. I finally finished my Raymond Chandler read. He only wrote seven full-length novels. He wrote a lot of short fiction. and short, I'm reading a couple of his collections now, but I finally finished reading all seven of his full-length novels he wrote over the course of his career. They were all about uh, Philip Marlowe. The Long Goodbye is the second to last one, and the second best one after The Big Sleep, which was the first one. And if you look at The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye, that's where you get the title, The Big Goodbye, from the Chinatown book earlier. It's an epic. Mostly these books are really fun murder mysteries, and then Philip Marlowe gets involved, and blah, blah, blah. But this is like this, there's a death in the very beginning, and then you've got like, this is also his longest book. It's 300 and something pages. You're only about 200 pages. And then there's like this long, bizarre relationship in the middle between Philip Marlowe and this couple, and psychosexual relationship with the wife and the husband is a drunk writer and that was all autobiographical because Raymond Chandler was an alcoholic and then it comes back around on the murder at the end but you almost forget the murder even happened because you're in this long the word three way is loaded the situation but there's a strange triangular relationship between three of them and it's crazy and then it's just this really sort of epic tale that was heads and shoulders above the previous novels which were all great but this one clearly meant something to him. It was very interesting and good. And Chandler was incredible. For a guy who only wrote seven novels all about the same character, he really, every once in a while, he told great mysteries and he told great stories and the characters were really fun. But every once in a while, he'd turn a phrase and I would just go, 
damn. And I would reread it like seven times because it was just so beautifully written. Just a terrific writer. I've really fallen in love with his writing over the last years. I've been reading all of his novels. He's incredible. He defined the genre for a reason. After reading all these books, I see it. It's great. Speaking of crime writers, I'm a big Richard Price fan, even when he does a horror show. Stephen King that, you know, wasn't fully my taste, but there you go. I read The Whites this year and I'd sort of missed it. I had meant to read it. It came out a while ago. Yeah, no, totally. I read it a couple of years ago. You know, if you actually look at this list that we're talking about, all of these heavy nonfiction books, I was like, I, I just need to read something else. And I kind of remembered that this existed and never got around to it. I mean, what a way with words. Like there were regularly sentences where I just, I'd marvel just at how beautiful and succinct and his descriptions of things and, and of people and knowing exactly what he was talking about the second that he did it. And, and it's a good yarn. Like it's a good story. The characters are, they're all New York city cops, you know? And so there's sort of an archetype that they're in. Price gets cops and he gets the streets and he gets the relationship between cops and the streets very, yeah. really well. Yeah. And this is a relationship between cops themselves and, yeah. and how they grow old over time and just the way that he, just how tired this guy is and, and the relationship, the main character, you know, that you don't really understand what the whites are until you're a little ways in. And there's a pretty good conclusion to it. I think it's, it's a well-written book, but, uh, you know, it, for me, the real thing is sort of just the beauty of the prose that's in there and the, the way that he writes dialogue. I was just in love with that book when I was done with it. Yeah, it was really good. So we talked about at the top of the show, music took a big hit this year, obviously. Not a lot of live shows. Normally Ron would be out seeing shows and Josh would go to his shows and we'd have a lot to talk about and uh, I'd get to check out for half an hour, but we don't have that this year. We have a much shorter segment, including Josh's newest coping mechanism. Yeah, so, you know, really, not even coping mechanism. I have been re- it's been recommended that I keep going to shows. I, I saw, I've saw, I want to say, two shows this year and the last one wasn't really great. Uh, so I'll talk about that. I started buying records at a tremendous pace. Like, I want to say I tripled my collection of stuff. This year? Yeah. Like, they were coming fast and furious for quite a bit. I've slowed down because now I actually need to listen to a lot of them. <laughs> no, I've listened I've listened to everything that I have. I've had come in at least once and sort of, but now I want to, you know, like, I, I don't just buy records that I kind of like. I want to get stuff that's, you know, really great. You know, that that's worth listening to in a way that you have to pay attention to it, which is, I think is the great part about records is that you have to like sort of make a commitment to pay attention. It's not really a background thing because if you go away, you know, it's over in 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, just a lot of, you know, important albums or things that I thought were really great growing up and, and things I found since then. But it, it's kind of a problem. And then I got into the into the version uh, issue. I was like, this doesn't sound great. Oh, the American pressing is bad. I better buy this one from Portugal. And it was almost a problem. But because I wasn't spending any money going to shows, you know, I was going to a couple shows a month for a while. I kind of felt like I could justify it and just saying, oh, I'm supporting these bands now Mm -hmm. in a way that and, you know, I'd buy them from them when I could. And I I felt pretty good about that. But also, you know, it's funny. Everyone's putting out their Spotify list. And I was just like, I have this stack of records. (laughs) This is my Spotify list of the year. And I set up a turntable in my office and, and a little setup. I love it. Those your UPS guy say, man, you're getting a lot of thin boxes. We don't talk anymore. We have to <laughs> we wave from a distance just through the glass. I'm just like, put it down. I'm not coming out. I will say that I partook in senseless vinyl shopping this year. In lieu of any new records coming out, I, I would see something on Instagram and be like, ooh, I love that album, and that's colored vinyl. All right, bye. <laughs> colored vinyl is a big thing. Oh, I, I got a nothing record on this do beautiful you, like splatter color. Oh, it was great. Do you check... Do you check to see if the pressing is good before you buy things now? 
No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I don't nearly have the time that you do to, to look into that. And I, I've been. I'm friends with people much longer than you've been involved in this who are obsessive sure. with records in that way to know not to go that way out. <laughs> just, There's a line, and I, yeah. for me, that line has to do with equipment. Like, yeah. I'm like, like okay, yeah. let's keep this. So, in a dearth year of releases and things like that, a couple of my favorite bands did have some new records that came out this year, including, of course, I feel like every year Bob Mould's come out with a new record that we've talked about on, on this show. Bob Mould's yearly release this year was a record called Blue Hearts, which I got on vinyl, very cool blue vinyl, which was great. And it's just, it's just great. He has become such an American master of punk, of, you know, just like his style of music. And it keeps pumping out these records that are each one's better than the last one and have got such a range and and you know you would think that after you know with such a long discography and such a you know kind of solidified sound especially with his recent run of new records you know with him and jason arducci on bass and john worcester on drums it would get somewhat repetitive and get somewhat you know kind of predictable but it doesn't it you know like he each record has a different nuance to it that makes it you know that much different and that much more delightful than the one that came before it blue hearts has got like a bubble's great at, at, at having like a aching sadness to some of his songs and that kind of covers that is you know ever present on this record but also with just like a, a tremendous amount of energy behind it which you know are you know kind of uh, juxtaposition or you know kind of a oxymoron kind of feelings but he pulls it off and i love this record a lot so uh it's, blue it's hearts a by really great record it's a really good record yeah, it's, he did it's, a really I, good job the, la- the last record I, I didn't love it was yeah. fine but i didn't love it and it was like his that other one was like his happy record yeah and this Sunshine is Rock, kind yeah. of a much yeah that's it Sunshine, it was it was more of like an angry record and it, it just it sounds great you know it's one of those things you're listening to it you, you, you have a moment where you go oh this is really good you know, and, and, you know, with somebody who, I don't want to say acquired taste, but it's not like he's a huge star, you know, when yeah. that stands out 40 something years into a career. I love that. Yeah. Also great, great colored final. Yeah. Really good. <laughs> yep. It's just such an easy mark. Color. Oh, totally. I'm not looking down. I do the exact same thing. Yeah. No, every once in a while, something I really like, uh, Ooh, it's green. Out with a colored one and I already have the black one. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I mean, the thing this year has been streaming shows and it's turned into like a little industry to keep folks, you know, paid. And a lot of th- what I think we're seeing now is not so much. There's still some live streaming, but it's a lot of like we're going to do a concert and you can pay for it and we'll do it at this time or like streaming of shows that were already recorded. But very early on, I want to say in the in March, people started streaming and on Instagram, Ben Gibbard started just doing these shows. No, he'd do like an hour of acoustic renditions of songs, Ben Giver from Death Gap for Cutie and the Postal Service, you know, and then questions from the audience. And f- I think he did them every day for, I want to say four weeks, but it might have been two weeks or vice versa. I'm not sure. And every day at like seven Eastern, he'd go on for an hour. And I watched all of them. I- I'm, a, I'm a big fan of that music, but acoustically, it also works really well, which is what people say it's, you know, that's the test of a song, whether you can play it like that. And other people were doing it too. Colin Malloy for the Decembers did a couple things where he was he was trying to teach him how to play a guitar and he kind of he doesn't know chords or music at all like he literally is like i don't i don't know what this chord is and at one point he just gave up and walked away but the ben gibbard ones i just thought were and he, he went he went into doing them like once a month but out of all the ones that i saw those are the ones that i most connected with there's plenty with them and i think they're all on youtube if you wanted to watch them but that was sort of my favorite part of the the earlier part of this that, I find that very affecting. Similarly, in, in lieu of live shows, like Josh said, there's been lots of virtual shows. And I know there's discussion, debate. I know, I think, Ron, you're not a big fan of the streaming shows. 
obviously it's not as good as being at a real show. But I watched three this year, and it was just nice. They went on really long, put them on in the background of the TV, and just you know let it run. And it started with Willie Nelson's 420 show, which he did obviously on April 20th, very early on in the pandemic. And it was just like this crazy, long <laughs> live stream of all these bands. Everyone was super high, so the technology wasn't great. The stream, I was like pulling my hair out watching it, going, Oh my God, I couldn't fix this. But like, <laughs> you know, one guy's video was upside down. <laughs> you know, then you had like super high, like Billy Ray Cyrus singing a duet with someone. There were great bands in that genre, Americana, outlaw country genre, but also it was kind of funny just to watch because you had almost 90 year old Willie Nelson trying to host this live stream. Is he really that old? Yeah, and he's in his wow. late 80s. and his sons are trying to figure this stuff out and they have a crew, but clearly not super professional. And it was just, it was somewhat frustrating, but also a lot of fun. But that's the thing that I, you know, that was the thing about what I was talking about is it just was so low key and and unprofessional that I I love that. Super unpretentious. Yeah. And then uh, when, when unfortunately John Prine died from coronavirus, it was a really great tribute concert for him that went on for many hours that I, I watched most of. And then again, we come back around to Willie Nelson, who did a, his you know annual Farm Aid show live, and the, all these shows were free, but you could donate to various causes. Like for Farm Aid, you donate to Farm Aid. For John Prine, I think it was there was some foundation, or was it for his family? I don't remember. But then, and Willie Nelson had various causes. You could donate to the Prisoner Project, all kinds of different things you could donate to. And I donated for all of them, watched them. I don't want to bring it around again, but give her to this. He picked a different. They were mostly local Seattle yeah. ones. He picked a different charity for every day that he did it. And it's really great. And also. In addition to the music, which was fun, and, and other stuff, there was a strange voyeuristic aspect of, oh, that's what their their house looks like, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Like, oh, that's what uh, Lucinda Williams' living room is. Interesting. What's interesting is the beginning of this, it was all about, like, charities. Yeah. And then at late now, it's like, we need money. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's definitely yeah. changed to, like, we need you to buy a concert ticket now. In April, it was like, oh, this is kind of this weird, fun thing. And now it's like, we're yeah. out of money. So... Yeah, I'm not as huge a music guy as you guys are, but I did enjoy having it on. I put it on my TV, have like four hours of just, I mean, if it's really good, I'd get up and I'd watch. Otherwise, I'd be doing my work in my background. So it was it was really nice, I thought. So I'm reporting on this largely because it was the last show that I went to. I saw Silver Sun Pickups at the House of Blues in Boston, which is one of those, like, do I want to go to this? And it was like on a Sunday night. I thought, sure, I'll get a ticket. Not knowing that this was the last concert I'll see. And I mean, it's probably going to be years to a certain extent. This was March 11th, I want to say, Sunday night. So, like, about a week later, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have gone to that. Yeah, well, that was a <laughs> political rally I was at the day before the shutdown. This is a bad idea. And it wasn't a great show. And I'm kind of bummed about it. It was one of those, like, I like a couple songs a lot, and there's something really interesting. But when I get to, like, a show, I was like, oh, this isn't the type of band of the show that I want to go to. So I was kind of bummed that that was, like, the end of the thing that happened. Like, it was fine. It was, like, a big show. You know, people were very happy about it. But I was like, this is not the sort of aging punk rock crowd I'm used to at all. But it's the last thing I went to. I may have left early. I don't think I did. But I wanted to remark it. I think I think that's the only show I saw this year, as far as I can tell, which kind of sucks. It, you know, just to put in the you know, the idea that, like, that's my favorite thing to do right now. You know, like, we talk about going to the movies. Like, I, you know, that's what I was doing. That was keeping me sane. And that's the part of this that's been really hard for me. And I had tickets, you know, like I'm, I don't know, maybe we all did. I had tickets for stuff. Yeah, that, I had three shows. I had. You know, I don't think I, think I got re- refunded on. I I I don't even remember. I think most of them said we're not refunding them because we're going to do a show in the future, but yeah. you can have your money back if you want. And I, I was fine with that. I, I had bad religion in May, which at the beginning I was like, well, maybe. And then it became clear like that wasn't going to happen. 
And then I, I bought like really close tickets for the Decembrists to bring my wife to. And it was in August. And for a little while, I was like, maybe this will happen. You know, you know, there's a point where people like postponing their shows until September. You know, like, <laughs> we'll be back, which now just seems all silly. Yeah, that for me was a really hard part of this year, which, by the way, is not even comparable to people who can't pay their bills. They have no, to go sure, to work. Yeah. They can't, you know, it isn't. But, you know, like socially, personally, the sort of one of the difficult things is is that for sure. The last record that came out this year, which actually just came out recently, was by Bandwidth. I know I talked about a couple of years ago on this show, but a, a Long Island band called Somerset Thrower, who came out with a new record called Paint My Memory. It's great to see a local kind of indie band continuing on doing a great job, like kind of in that post hardcore kind of actually, you know, those, those of you who, who know Long Island and New York, you know, kind of music and remember the nineties band garden variety, this is right up your alley because Somerset Thrower is kind of channeling everything that was great about garden variety back in the day. It's just a solid record that just delivered. So I was glad to see them. It was completely surprised. Like I haven't seen, you know, I haven't seen them live for well over a year. But I was like, oh, cool. They did a new record. Awesome. And so hopefully they're able to tour against it next year or at least do something. But uh, Paint My Memory by Somerset Thrower, definitely worth checking out. Rob, what were you listening to this year? Like, what were you really into? Like, can you think of like one band that you nothing. did? Like, a no, I, don't, I don't really want to talk about it because it's nothing. Because it's yeah. it's stuck in a one bedroom apartment with two two year olds. I'm listening to a lot of fucking uh, kids music and Frozen songs and things like that. Uh-huh. I don't I don't really. Unfortunately, not all of us have the luxury to you know to, yeah. to you know to to do that, especially in the, with the pandemic and everything this year. So, music unfortunately is something I'm looking forward to returning to next year. When like when I you do. go running, do you listen to music? Or do you listen? To like no, podcasts? I try to listen to podcasts. Podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, hey. which is a great segue into our next section because without my commute, you know, I, I would lucky if I went running once or twice a, a week, I barely was able to keep up with any podcast. So I have nothing mm-hmm. new to add to this discussion, unfortunately, which kills me as well, too. Well, so. it's interesting because sort of opposite is that I'm not someone who normally listens to, to podcasts. So in the very beginning, the first three or four months of the pandemic lockdown in, in L.A., I had a lot of free time and I would go on long daily walks. And so that's when I started listening to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend with Conan O'Brien. So I'm well, Ceci and, and friend of the show, Matt Gorley, friend of the other show, Matt Gorley. <laughs> ah, friend of this, yeah, we'll, we'll take that. It's a friend of ours. I would go on these long walks when we were able to walk and I'd listen to one or two episodes. And That's a long walk. Well, you know, what else are you going to do? I have nothing else to do. So I, hear you. I think we've talked about it before, but I think Conan O'Brien for myself is underrated because when he took over for David Letterman, I was a hardcore Letterman fan. I went with Letterman over to CBS. I watched Tom Snyder and I watched Craig Ferguson. I never really watched Conan O'Brien. And also I went to one live taping his first year when I was still living in New York and it was awful. Huh. Like I didn't laugh one time because it was the first year. The show wasn't good. He'll even tell you the show wasn't good. So I sort of never really watched Conan. Here and there I'd see something, but never really watched him. But I think it's clear to me listening to this show that he is like a genius. Yes. I think he's legitimately a comedy genius. And from friends I have who work in TV writing, who've worked with writers from late night, he is supposedly like the nicest late night host by far. Everyone likes him. He's got no problems, no beefs. He's everyone's friend. And it comes across that way on the show. And for a while, I was wondering if it was genuine or not. And then when my friend told me, no, no, everyone who works with him loves him. It's his joy. When the guests are great, it's great. But the three of them bantering before and after the yeah. guests are sort of the highlight of the show for me, depending, obviously, when it's a great guest. When it's somebody he likes and respects, somebody who's equally funny, somebody who he's friends with, that part's great. Like, John Mulaney was great. Tom Hanks was mm-hmm. great. Those kind of guests, my Rudolph. But really, it's the opening and closing banter that are terrific. I agree. Yeah. The, I mean, Gorley is 
also a comedy genius. Gourley's really great. Gourley holds great. his own. Gourley holds his yeah, own. Yeah, totally. It's funny because I was thinking about Gourley the other day because he's he wound down. I was there too in in order, I believe, to support the Conan show. Yeah. Well, it's his full time job. job. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he does the James Bonding podcast, and he does another podcast with Paul Rust called uh, with Gourley and Rust. Uh, that's the name of that one. And he does Super Ego from you know when they they circle back for that. But it made me think of when you really like an actor and they do a TV show that you don't like. And so you just don't have that actor in your life. And I don't necessarily like the Gorley and Rush show is all about horror movies. I'm not a horror fan. I'm not listening to Conan O'Brien. So like without, I was there too. I have no real Gorley in my life and I'm jealous. So, (laughs) well, they did a series of short shows in the summer called the summer s'mores with Conan and the chill chums. Yeah. Where there was just the three of them bantering for like 20 minutes. There was no guests. I mean, I would listen to those shows. They're very, very funny. Gorley's a producer. So he leads, the conversation and he picks the yeah. subject he's in the show a lot yeah my wife had started listening to it and said you should listen to it and i said yeah yeah <laughs> but and then connor started listening to it and i was like connor's never recommended a podcast to me ever so it stood out and i went on a binge i listened to a lot of them i will say i have not listened to almost any of them from this new season because yeah. i haven't been super interested yeah, in the guests yeah, it really feels more like like these are celebrities not comedians or something you know you tell me if i missed one no i I actually haven't once i changed jobs and i had no more free time i'd stop listening because i didn't have Mm -hmm. the walks anymore i also just want to mention before we move on sona is actually very funny yeah because she's not a performer like conan's a performer and girl is a performer she also doesn't give a shit right she doesn't give a shit but comes across i think she's legitimately naturally very funny she Mm -hmm. holds her own she comes up with funny lines for someone who's not trained to be a performer i'm impressed by her holding her own and these two other guys who are very very funny and good at their jobs I don't listen to a ton of podcasts anymore. Uh, there's a few that I still listen to, but I've already talked about them here. And I listen to Audible all the time. But Audible actually does a couple of podcasts. So uh, somebody told me to download Alan Partridge's podcast from the Oast House, which is relatively recent. I'm a massive Alan Partridge fan. I think he's one of the funniest characters and performances I've ever seen. It's interesting because if you watch the trip movies with Steve Coogan or whatever, like I just don't even see... I just don't even see Alan Partridge and, and vice versa. Anyway, this is like a, I don't know how many episodes it is, but it was like a six hour thing. that was a bunch of episodes of his podcast and it, he just moves into this old house, which is called an Oast house for some reason. I don't know. It's a certain type of converted home or whatever. And he spouts off, you know, about whatever it is is going and like he'll continually go on walks or talk about how he's going to do something. And then like a few steps out, he's just like, he starts breathing really heavy. It's very funny. But over the course of it, uh, he keeps talking about this Twitter troll that he has. And so there's this one through line that goes through the whole story until he finally goes to confront him in the last episode of the thing. You know, but it's all done in like as if he was sitting inside his house and talking into a microphone. So it's like a fictional nonfiction podcast. Sort of. I mean, it, I, I have no doubt that it's scripted because, you know, like jokes are coming at you nonstop. But the character is so well established. And I mean, Steve Coogan is so friggin funny as this person. I loved it. When I walk the dog, the more I'm into a book, the longer a dog walk I get. And I would walk a long time and I'd be the lunatic laughing out loud, you know, <laughs> as I walk down the street by myself. So if you like that, check that out. I stumbled upon this podcast recently. It's about a story I've been, not obsessed with, but I've been keeping my eye on for a while now. It's called Chameleon Hollywood Con Queen with Josh Dean and Vanessa Gregory Diaz. A few years ago, I read this story. It was covered in Vanity Fair. And I think it was covered in The Hollywood Reporter. So somebody was conning people in Hollywood, low-level people, people who are trying to make their break or, or who are you know, trying to rise in the ranks, impersonating high-level executives, offering them jobs overseas in Chinese productions, I think in Thailand. 
and they'd go there and they'd have to front a lot of money for like uh, their travel expenses and they have to front some money that calls it oh I, I don't have my bank account set up yet you need to pay this guy for the license don't worry we'll ex- expense it back and and wouldn't get a ton of money out of each individual person but when added up all the thousands of people that was happening to it they were amassing mil- over a million dollars in this this grift and it was like a, r- a really interesting story because it was all these people being preyed upon by this con artist somewhere in the world and it just happened last week this person was identified and arrested and, it, and part of that identification came through the course of this podcast which follows these two reporters who have been working on this case for over a year and this show lasts about that long. The show itself was only 10 episodes that came out recently, but the recording and investigation of the show went over a year. And so they were intertwined in the identification and discovery and arrest of this person. And it's a great little mystery and fascinating characters. Hollywood attracts very interesting and odd people, and it's all these people get caught up in this story, want to be screenwriters, want to be trainers for the stars, want to be producers, makeup people who who are low-level, want to run a department. And the story ends up unfolding in a way that is not at all expected, and I thought it was a really fascinating story. If you like it all, like crime, true life tales, what's interesting about this podcast is it's not looking at something from the past. It's looking at something that's happening concurrently, that the people who are making the podcast are actively investigating, and that actually does come to a conclusion, which is not always the case with these crime podcasts. It was really, really good. Another crime podcast in that way. I was listening to Revisionist History, as I want to do. So one of the, my favorite podcasts. I love I love it, but I've talked about that on here before. And they talked about some other podcasts that, that his company did, Pushkin, called Deep Cover the Drug Wars with Josh Halpern. And it is the story of an FBI agent who infiltrated biker gangs. And over the course of this, uh, you know, he was like a straight, straight arrow uh, FBI guy, and he was married to another FBI agent, and he infiltrated this biker game for, gang for years and, like, turned into a biker. Like, he it, it kind of, like, personally and in, in, you know, in appearance and everything, you know, and, and he kind of, a little like Donnie Brasco, but for bikers. And it's, you know, long form, true crime you know, a lot of first person interviews and, and things that they're talking about this story. And, and again, how biker crime really was much more widespread than you could even imagine. Yeah, they're really bad. Yep. I love long term storytelling. Like, it's my favorite thing to listen to. So, again, you know, multiple episodes, it goes on for a while. I haven't finished it. You should check that out if that sounds good. Home stretch. This is the last segment of the show. Josh and I talk about the week's comics every week on the Pick of the Week show, but we'd like to end this uh, year end show talking about some of our favorite books of the year. These are not all of our favorites, but some of our favorites, and we do it very quickly. I'm going to start it off with The Deceased Family of Books. That includes Dead Planet, Unkillables, Hope at World's End. I cheated on a couple of these this year. I think, for my money, still this little family of -of out-of-continuity stories that Tom Taylor has created in this little world of books is the best thing at DC, and it's the best thing, I think, in comics in general in terms of regular weekly superhero stories. Utterly compelling Great characterizations, terrific art. DC characters in a way that they haven't been done in years. Uh, he's very true to all the characters. It's a ton of fun. We thought, Josh and I, that the initial miniseries was one thing. He actually ended up blowing out the world with this whole other thing, telling a really deep and interesting story. And I'm always happy when a new issue of a Deceased comes out, no matter which series it is. Also, uh, so I guess sort of unlike his previous, what's it called, Injustice, mm-hmm. pretty strong art across the board, yep. especially the main series. Um, which is, isn't so much the case. Unkillable is a great art too. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Dragon Hoops by Jean Luen Yang, the best graphic novel I, I I can remember reading. It's our book of the year in, 
Yeah, book of the year. We, you know, if you listen to the show normally, you'll know that there's an interview with Gene Lun Yang that I did a little earlier this year, and we talked about it in the December Booksplode. You know, and it's not like if you've read Gene Yang stuff before, it is not like that. It's not really about you know Chinese mythology or history. It's just a personal story about him. I mean, that culture stuff comes into it to a certain extent. You know, great autobio story, really uh, wonderful. Fantastic Four ended up being surprisingly. I, I've been loving it since its resurgence, reemergence in the wake of the movie shenanigans. I think this series has been great. I think Dan Slott's the perfect writer for this book. It's had terrific art. It's shocking, but I'm always kind of excited when a Fantastic Four book comes out. Me too. It's weird. I don't know why, but I am. And much like when Dan Slott wrote Silver Surfer, he gets that sort of Marvel 60s cosmic tone that the Fantastic Four seems to have to live in to really work. There's been other runs that have been successful. I liked Hickman's run, but I think that Slot finds that perfect balance of G-Wiz Marvel cosmic stuff with family superhero drama. The read that we have right now is a really terrific and interesting read that's, that's happening across these books. Absolutely. One, I guess, surprise was this Doctor Doom series that's been coming out sort of semi-regularly throughout the pandemic, but in that way, it's actually a monthly book, which, you know, is nice. Doctor Doom by Christopher Cantwell and Salvador La Roca. Roca, not one of my favorite artists, but he's certainly holding his own here. It's funny because I think the Doom right before this was the Brian Bendis, like, going to be a good guy Doom. And this sort of resets him as a bad guy, but not exactly. It's crazy funny because of the concepts that are there. And it's sort of serious. And it's just a wonderful sort of character piece on this one guy. And Kang shows up and then Doom rides a bear. (laughs) He hates Richard's. It's great. Again, I get very excited when a new Doctor Doom issue comes out. And those sentences don't even make sense. I don't know where Cantwell... I mean, I know where he came from. I don't know why he's doing comics like this at this level. It doesn't make sense, but there you go. I struggled a bit putting Strange Adventures on this list. I ended up putting it on because, despite the fact that we've talked about this almost every issue that's come out, we're not quite sure what this book is, what it's saying, or what's happening. We still have a good chunk of it left. I still am excited to read it when it comes out because, A... It's got unsurpassed art happening between Mitch Garrett and Doc Shaner. Every issue is beautiful. They work together really well. It's not often you get artists working together on a single page. There's always a reason for the art switch, and it's gorgeous. But also, no other book makes me think as much as this one does in terms of what is happening here. What am I supposed to be learning from this? What's what am I t- taking away? Which is not to denigrate other books. It's just that this particular book is written in such a way that not a lot is clear. And so, while it may be frustrating at times... Whenever it comes out, I'm always very excited. It's usually one of the last books I read. And that's nice. always the book I'm most excited for. Because just because I don't know what I'm going to get when I read the issue. Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, started last year, wrapped up this year. Matt Fraction and Steve Lieber, we talked about almost every issue. It was pick of the week several times. It was laugh out loud funny. This is the most fun comic series I've read in a long time. Probably the most favorite Fraction book I've ever read. It's definitely my favorite Fraction book I've ever read, and it's a, a showcase for Steve Lieber. And I spoke with him earlier this year. You can find the talks explode about it. And it, it's funny because he didn't think he was very funny. And he found this like niche where he figured out he could do that stuff. And a lot of what's great about that book comes from him, other than just it's superb, exemplary art. But the whole thing is a triumph until about the last four pages. And that's not even bad. It's just like, oh, okay, you're back in D.C. now. Okay. It's fine. I don't want to end it like that. It's a, it's a lovely book. Everybody should read it. The two Marvels books this year, Marvels X and the, the Marvel Snapshots books, together create this really, really great old school Marvel feel. And when I'm looking through the list of books that I love this year, I kept coming back to 
that Marvel X series, which Josh, you made me read, which I'm happy you did, and then the one shots that have come out, the snapshots, which have been a varying quality, but I've enjoyed them all, and some of them have been yeah. really great. It's almost like reading this book are stepping back into the 1980s Marvel, which I, as a kid, I loved. So between really interesting and unusual art, Welby's art and Marvel's X was very unusual for a superhero book, and but terrific. And then all the different creators you're getting on the Snapshots books, unusual takes on these characters from the ground level view. It's been a lot of fun reading all these Marvel's books. Yeah, curated by uh, Kurt Busiek yep. as well. And, and, and Alex Ross does the covers. Middle West wrapped up this year. This is written by Scotty Young and is it Jorge Corona? Yep. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I, we talked about this on the show. I loved watching, you know, Scotty go from, you know, guy who did, you know, great artist and, and did really wonderful pinups that people just love to death. And he could make a living doing baby Avengers or whatever. But instead, he's going over and doing really wonderful work as a writer at Image. And and is this the only Image series on here? Yes, yep. it is. It was tough. I was looking around, but there was nothing from Image that really grabbed me this year. I'm just super impressed at the guy who said, well, I think I'm going to write some comics, too. You know, and did the work, you know, like the stuff at the beginning wasn't great, but he just keeps getting better. And this this series, I was very excited every time an issue came out. I, I, thought, I thought the length of it was good, it was 16 or 18 issues or something like that. Art was fantastic. And it was like an artist who it wasn't an artist doing a, a Scotty Young impersonation. You know, yep. it was in the style, but not a ripoff. Yeah, but it, it fit the story really sort of touching and, you know, heartfelt and unique. Uh, it didn't feel like, you know, any other thing. Uh, that I read. You know, it's funny. We, we were discussing who was going to put Hellblazer on their on their list, John Constantine Hellblazer, and we thought it was more interesting if I did because, you know, everyone knows who listens to the show. Josh is a huge Hellblazer fan. But I fell in love with this book. Also, this 10 issues? Was it 10, 12 issues? 12 issues? I think 12. This little 12-issue run on not Vertigo Black <laughs> Label from Cy Spurrier and Aaron Campbell and the other guy who's art. I can't remember because it's been three hours. <laughs> Terrific run. Wonderful book. Lots of interesting things to say about modern-day Britain, plus fun magic stories, great characterizations. This was a really fun John that felt authentic as someone who's read some of the original run, but not all of it like Josh has, or almost all of it. Again, like all these books I'm talking about, whenever I saw this on the pull list, I was like, ooh, that's exciting. Whenever you have books like that, your pull list, you're always excited to read on Wednesday. It was really cool that you were excited about it, like over and over, and it kept delivering. Because like, I can't think of a time that we ever talked, in all the years we've done this, I was the only one ever talked about Hellblazer for the most part. So that's fun. Finally, one of my favorite superheroes, I'd probably put him neck and neck with Captain America, is Clint Barton, Hawkeye, that version. Although, I, I don't mind Kate. She's okay. Freefall, which was uh, written by Matthew Rosenberg and drawn by Otto Schmidt, was just this great, compelling, mysterious, and beautiful Hawkeye miniseries. Six issues. Did not know what was going on through a lot of it, but in the good way. You know, he's just like, this doesn't make sense. And it sort of comes around and, you know, you could, you could frame it as uh, Hawkeye versus the hood, but it was a lot more than that. You know, it was, it's hard to get good Hawkeye stories that aren't trying to be Matt Fraction and David yep. Aja's Hawkeye. And every time that Matt Rosenberg goes anywhere near Hawkeye, good he stuff. does a great job with that yeah. character, you know, and when he, you know, when he pairs him with, uh, with Bucky, you know, that's magic, but just on its own, this was it's a great series. Really wonderful. One of my top five books of the year. I love Top yep. Free Fall. And there you go. That's it. That's our, you look back at all media 2020. The long one, even though it was a weird year. Wasn't that bad. I mean, it was a weird year. I mean, really with the loss of movies and music, that was the major thing. Seems like everything else was just fine. Yeah. 
but you <laughs> felt weird when you were reading. It felt weird. I'm just saying it wasn't that bad. I'm trying to be a little, you, a little half full. A little at half this full. point, it wasn't bad. There's a lot of great stuff in there, but it's interesting how it was like every time there was a crowd scene in something, you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so everything's kind of changed. Yeah. So there you go. We hope you enjoyed listening. We enjoyed talking about it. I hope you enjoyed the discussions throughout the year. Let's wrap this up with some plugs. Yeah. So if you want to listen to more of me blathering on specifically about mobile phones or the Android operating system, go listen to All About Android over at twit.tv slash AAA. We just recently had our 500th episode, which means I've been doing that show for nearly a decade, which is crazy. So yeah. So if you're into tech, like This Week in Tech, check it out because we get some fun guests and talk Google a lot. So it's fun times. And also, if you're curious what I've been up to, uh, head over to scorbit.io. It's a new company I launched a couple of months ago, mainly around pinball. We've got an app for iOS and for Android that lets you track your pinball scores, and you can purchase a device if you own a pinball machine called a Scorbitron that will connect your pinball machine to the internet. It's pretty awesome. If you want to talk more about that, hit me up on Twitter at RonXO. I'm glad to talk to you all about it. Do you miss shows or pinball more? Uh, both. All right. Well, that's a that's a. I mean, okay. that's pretty pretty equal. Well, you know, so that's hard to choose. Well, I think the thing was that you were like, I've been to a lot of shows. This pinball thing's new. Well, somewhat. I mean, I don't know. The part of this tough thing about both of them is that both of them are, I mean, the music entertainment is, is great, but both of them are both very social activities and like go yeah. play pinball with people. And I miss that, you know, I, I miss going to shows with my friends and that's the challenge of this year, but hopefully things will get better. Josh mentioned earlier, we have, a, we did a, our December book explode on Dragon Hoops, our book of the year by Jean Luen Yang. You can hear that on the feed behind the show somewhere back there. It's our last show, Unlocked by the Patrons, at patreon.com slash our last Booksplode show. And that'll be back in February with our next one. But you can check out that review. We really love that book. It really was one of the best things we read all year. Absolutely. There is the Talksplode podcast. And I say this, but like I had a great year with those shows. Like I, I talked to interesting people, people who I hadn't really had conversations with before, some people who I didn't know or who I knew but then got to know better through their stuff. I don't know. You will listen to this after I release the one from this month, provided everything goes well. So I can't say anything. At the time of recording this particular show, you have yet to record the Talksplode show, so we don't know when exactly that's coming out. Yeah, exactly. And presumably it will come out, but I can't even know that. Hopefully it came out already. The highlight for Talksplode this year was, was the great Kelly Thompson show, where I recorded one of the best shows I've ever done and then realized that I had not recorded my track. So classic Flanagan. Classic. No, not classic Flanagan. I've done dozens of these, and that's never happened. Classic. I've never screwed up an audio show like that, which is just was mortifying. Which she was so cool that we went back and did it again and did it a completely different show. Yeah, and Steve Lieber, great year for that. I, I still think you should have gone on. back and dubbed in your side of the conversation. <laughs> it would have been a really fun exercise. It would have been too tempting for me to like like change them all into jokes. Exactly. It'd be like yeah. a Daily Show. Finally, our normal Pick of the Week show, which Josh and I and sometimes Ryan Haupt talk about the week's comics, uh, is on holiday break, but it will return January 10th with episode 762. That's right, 762. The long march to 800. Ooh, the long march to 800 begins. So that you can find that. will be This is our last show of the year, assuming the talk flow doesn't come out after. Probably not, since this is almost Christmas time when you're hearing this. So and hope you enjoyed this year in podcast. We enjoyed doing it. We always enjoy doing it. We love doing these shows we hope you like listening to them and we thank everyone who listens to them let's wrap it up josh you can go over to ifanboy.com you can find all of our podcasts you can find all of the content that was ever written for our site at ifanboy.com which is quite a bit and all those other interview podcasts i think what was the last the last talk split i think it was 90 
92 maybe. You're inching up on 100, yeah. Yeah, inching up on 100, which that's problematic. You know, that's all there uh, for you to listen to and enjoy. You can find out what the pick of the week is every week by going to facebook.com slash ifanboy or ifanboy on Twitter or at ifanboycomics on Instagram so that when you go to listen to the show, you're you're aware of the pick. You know what it is. And you can make a decision. I'm not. We're not telling you you have to read it. I hear from lots of people who don't read any comics and listen to the show. I don't know what that's about, but thank you. <laughs> you can uh, follow us individually. Connor and I are on Instagram at CSKilpatrick and at J.A. Flanagan. And, I, I, and the, the ifanboy Instagram account's pretty great. Lots of good art and fun stuff on there. We do the you know panels of the week. It's really good. And Ron, you are on yep. Twitter and Instagram. I am. Uh, Ron XO, both of them. There you go. You can subscribe to our YouTube page. You should like and subscribe right down there in the middle of the box at youtube.com slash ifanboy. And you can keep up on our old video shows that we are re-uploading. Some relevant. Others very not relevant. And we look different. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. I, can't, I, I can't even talk about that. Josh is a whole different person. <laughs> <laughs> two of them almost <laughs> this past week uh, this past week on Monday uh, there's a mini in which Ron talks about his pick of the week Glamour Puss number one do you have anything to say uh, over the intervening years that you think you could add to that yeah it's, it's tragic that Dave Sim you know can't really draw as well as he have you know because of the health problems he've had and things like that we'll never get the secret history of Alex Raymond that was printed in the pages of Glamour Puss that's just a bummer I'm sorry yeah. There's also the history of DC's crisis books. <laughs> he quickly uh, moves on. <laughs> well, what we're going to do, it's fucking three hours into this thing, which I'm sure needs an update, but that's not going to happen. And then on uh, Friday, there's a spotlight on Sin City, the comic book, um, yep. which I think still st- would stand up then. Our opening gag was it was in black and white, our show. Oh, the opening gag. That's an easy video oh. effect. <laughs> I bet the lighting wasn't great. No, terrible. My favorite thing watching these old video shows go up is to see what we got away with with no copyright matching technology at all 15 years ago or you know, or, or 13 years ago or whatever. The, the number of copyrighted songs and things like that that oh. we use that YouTube catches now is very funny. Yeah, it's a different world. <laughs> Finally, if you like the show uh, or any podcast, any of the shows we listed in our segment, any of the shows you listen to all year long, the best Christmas, holiday, Hanukkah gift you can give them is to leave a star rating or write a review wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts being the main place. But that helps every show you listen to. It's one of the best things you can do for any podcast. All about Android. That's how podcasts are found. That's how algorithms work. If you want to help your favorite show out and you don't want to donate or be a patron, leave a rating, leave a review. It takes two seconds and every show would appreciate it. Even better than that, spread word of mouth, tell your friends, hey, I listen to the show over Christmas dinner, New Year's, you know, when you're going for the kiss, say, but well, hold on, have you, have you heard iFanboy? It's a great icebreaker, actually, at any New Year's party. I don't recommend that, but if you do it, let us know how that went. I don't even know why I said that. Because they're not going to be New Year's parties. There shouldn't be. They'll be like, we know each other really well, marriage ones. And so they'll be like, I, I, don't, I know about the podcast. I don't, I don't care. Those jackasses you listen to in the other room all the time. Anyway, where are we? Spread the love. This is the end of the show. I'm Connor. I'm Josh. I'm Ron. And oh, I'm Ron. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> 15 years. I followed the script. No, I didn't follow the script, but I, 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 you know what I did? I followed the guest protocol. There it is. I'm not Sorry. a guest. I don't feel like a guest here. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Wash your hands. We'll see you next year. Thanks for listening to all of our shows this year, and goodbye. Love you. I was going to say that. <laughs> all the way home, I'll be warm. Hope the fire is slowly dying. But my dear, we're still goodbye. But as long as you love me so. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow 
Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Let it snow.